BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I thought the NFL did something interesting over the weekend. Something that the NBA, the NHL, certainly college football could learn from. What did the NFL do over the weekend that was different than everybody else in the sports world? Well, the NFL captured our attention from start to finish. It had compelling matchups. It had drama. It had us all tuned in and locked in all the way through Sunday night, Saturday from Sunday night. And in the end, uh, we get our playoff set. And we feel like, like you probably have an idea of who you think might win the postseason. Like, maybe you believe the Buffalo Bills are a team of destiny. Certainly they look like it. Returning two kickoffs for touchdowns over the weekend was remarkable. I mean, you couldn't make it up that they take the opening kickoff after the DeMar Hamlin injury, and they take the opening kickoff the next time they're on the field and score a touchdown on it. I thought that was just brilliant theater. Couldn't make it up. And the NFL gave it to us. I also thought over the weekend, like, you know, teams in Seattle, Detroit, Green Bay, fan bases in places like that, they didn't know what was happening until ultimately Sunday night at about 8.30 Pacific time until you figured out that the Seattle Seahawks were going to the postseason and the Packers are done and Aaron Rodgers getting wispy coming off the field. There's just great theater. People can talk all they want about the parody that goes on in the NFL, and certainly the parody plays into this. When you've got a bunch of teams that are sitting at 8-8 eight and eight, entering the weekend with an opportunity to get to the playoffs, if this happens, then that, if A, then B, if B, then C. Like you had all of these scenarios that kept the fan bases in a multitude of cities engaged. Even though it was the final game of the regular season, and there was some meaningless football play, don't get me wrong, but I feel like in the NBA, and even in Major League Baseball, you maybe get one matchup at the end of the season, one matchup on the final day that, hey, determines this team gets in or not, and the rest of the teams are sitting their starters and they're waiting and game planning for the weekend and game planning for the playoffs, rather. And I just felt like the NFL had a message for college football in particular over the weekend as, you know, college football is looking at expanding the playoff. It will go to 12 teams in 2024. We'll have one more year where we have to endure the system that we have currently going on uh, that that uh, wraps up tonight with Georgia taking on TCU, but uh, the uh, the landscape of college football could learn something from what we saw last night. It was great theater. I mean, right down to the fact that Aaron Rodgers is coming off the field at Green Bay, and we don't quite know what what is going to happen with him. You have coaches today getting fired. You have the Lions knocking the Packers out. You have Pete Carroll. You know, uh, you know, finishing his regular season, and and Seahawks fans, I gotta, I gotta empathize with you. I watched the Seahawks game yesterday, almost start to finish, because it happened to be on at the same time as the 49ers game. So it's kind of flipping back and forth. But I gotta tell you, there is such a stark contrast between a team that is playing at the highest level or one of the highest levels in the NFC. And the 49ers do a whole bunch right. They got a lot of weapons. Certainly, they're in a different position today than the Seahawks are in. But uh, I'm watching the Seahawks sort of grit out that that victory against the Rams, 
and position themselves to uh, be spectators for the Lions-Packers game. And, man, I mean, everything from clunking the uh, the uh, potential game winner at the end of regulation off the upright to uh, lining up wrong to fumbling to throwing an interception to, uh, you know, if you're a Seahawks fan, I bless you because you have been through, I think, a soap opera all season long. And it started in part with Russell Wilson leaving for the Denver Broncos. And a lot of Seahawks fans going, this year's going to suck. Well, guess what? Your team got into the postseason, and I think Seattle's got to celebrate that in a different way than San Francisco is getting into the postseason and, you know, as one of the favorites in the NFC and positioning itself differently. Pete Carroll, after the game last night. Playoffs are not nine wins out of this team. Yeah, you yeah, that nine and eight? <laughs> That ain't, that ain't the way I'm looking at it. I mean, I, I'm glad that we have a winning record and uh, that we, that, you know, we, we give ourselves a chance here. But that's not where my expectations are. They never are. You know, I mean, I'm, not, I'm nowhere near that. And uh, so, I'm frustrated by this season. Where you all thought that oh, we did a lot of cool things and all that. I don't. I, I don't feel like that. I feel like we we missed our chance. We have five five six games there could have won easily one way or the other and, and we wouldn't be sitting here talking about you know what's going on in Detroit right now and, and uh, so you know that's my torment you know I gotta live with that you guys don't have to live with that yeah, Pete Carroll's such a good coach and such a good manager of expectations and men- mentality I mean I think a lot of times coaches uh, get credit for the X's and O's and certainly we saw some of that like Dan Campbell declining a uh, offsides penalty late in the uh, Packers Lions game that was a strategy play Good X and O strategy play, right? Uh, but uh, I think more often than not, the uh, the best coaching that some of these coaches do are amid um, are amid you know controversy and obstacles and having to improvise and adapt. And Pete Carroll certainly did that in a season that he did not have Russell Wilson to bail him out. Uh, but I thought the NFL, you know, if I'm college football, I'm looking over at the NFL and I'm going, okay, in 2024, how do you get to a position? Or how much of this is solved simply by going to a 12-team playoff where the, you know, the major conferences, the, uh, you know, the, the Power Five conferences get a, uh, what amounts to an automatic uh, bid, so they become sort of like the division winners. Uh, you know, they get the, an automatic bid to the playoff, and then there are six at-large teams. And I think inherent in that is going to be some of the complications and some of the strategizing that's going on right now behind closed doors with the Pac-12 athletic directors. So they're, you know, they're holed up, still trying to figure out, should they play eight conference games, nine conference games? Should they go to a north-south, back to a north-south division for 2023 or 2024? Like, they're, they're sorting through all of that stuff. That's why there's been, I guess, a delay in releasing the 2023 schedule. But I'm kind of looking into the future, and I'm going, okay, how do you figure out how to put on these spectacles towards the end of the season? that are essentially unopposed by any other sports programming, that, you know, command the stage, that offer great storylines. And I think some of that is forming. You know, as we get news today, Cam Rising's coming back at Utah. You now have all these great quarterbacks in the Pac-12 conference. And so what you do have, I mean, I guess as a positive byproduct of name, image, likeness, and the ability for some of these collectives to pay players is you get we get a chance to know these guys. You're going to get to know Bo Nix a little better. Washington fans are going to get to know Michael Penix Jr. a little bit better. Utah fans know Cam Rising. They're going to get to know him better. What motivates him? What kind of guy is this? Uh, you're going to you know one of my big frustrations with kind of the trend in college athletics, in particular college basketball, has been the one and done era. And it's not because 
players are coming in and kind of using college athletics as a stepping stone, it's because we don't get to know these players. We don't get to see them grow and develop like we used to. I think part of the fun as a fan was associating players with your team, seeing a Peyton Pritchard come through the door as a freshman, watching him play on a Final Four team a little bit over his head at that level at the Final Four, and then watching him blossom as a sophomore, junior, senior, and seeing him sort of, you know, command, uh, you know, become an uh, NBA first-round draft pick. And some of that has been lost. A lot of that has been lost in college basketball. But I think the NIL rules are going to bring that back to college football, along with a whole other bunch of other baggage that we're not going to like. But I'm kind of looking at the NFL, and I'm going, okay, we have this great storyline with Aaron Rodgers, and is this his last game? And how much did the Packers really care? And how in over their heads did they appear, by the way? At the end of the season, just, you know, this once proud franchise with a Hall of Fame, certainly a Hall of Fame quarterback in Aaron Rodgers, uh, having to kind of fumble and bumble its way, sitting on nine points for much, much of the game, trying to get just get into the playoffs where they know they're probably going to get their teeth kicked in in the opening round against San Francisco, and they don't even get there. So I'm looking at college football, and I'm going, hey, maybe this is a step in the right direction. And I talked to Rick George, the Colorado Athletic Director, earlier today, and he essentially said, you're better off in the Pac-12 where you only have 10 or 12 teams that you have to worry about versus going into the SEC or going into the Big 12 where you have to play and compete against 16 or 18 teams to try to get that automatic bid that the college football playoff in 2024 and beyond will offer. And it's a great point. He's invested in Deion Sanders. He has invested in an assistant coaching pool that – will help elevate Colorado's program. Meanwhile, you got about six quarterbacks in the Pac-12 who are all coming back next season, who are all going to look like world beaters, and it really starts to get me bullish on what the conference can be, maybe not, uh, you know, maybe not as good as the SEC in most years, let's be real, but I think you could find that a conference champion in the Pac-12 conference can stand with a straight face in the CFP as it expands to 12 teams and expect to compete. I think there's something out there. And for, you know, college football fans who say, hey, I don't want the college football season to move into August, I would caution you because the NFL already put games on Saturday uh, in this final week of the, of the uh, NFL regular season. They'll play a Saturday, Sunday, Monday schedule on wildcard weekend. And I think if you're college football and you're looking at expanding the playoff, you either need to move the playoff to immediately following the end of the regular season with no time off, or you have to move the season up to a week zero start. Everybody start just a week earlier, because otherwise you're running into uh, exactly the kind of uh, divided attention that the NFL would probably enjoy. Like, you're not going to want to be head-to-head with any of these late-season NFL games because the NFL gets it. And the NFL get like, you could hate on Roger Goodell. You can talk all you want about the violence of the game. You can talk all you want about, you know, uh, some of the problems in the NFL, uh, bad ownership, whatever. But the fact of the matter is this league flat draws our attention in a way that nothing else does. And you don't want to be head-to-head with these games. So if I'm college football and I'm expanding the playoff in 2024, you better be sure that I am moving the season up so I don't have to play head-to-head postseason games against postseason games with NFL wildcard weekend or the last week of the NFL regular season. That's just too much to ask. And look, 
you know, there's no Monday night football per se tonight, but there is a national championship game. And the reason that college football CFP is playing that national championship game on, on this Monday night is, is exactly because the NFL doesn't have a product tonight. There's nothing to oppose it. So it works. 503-417-7575. Tell me what you learned from the NFL, what you saw on the final weekend of the season, who you like in the playoffs. I'm looking at uh, some of the storylines that have come out in the last couple of weeks, and I just think it's just been great theater in the NFL. Even, you know, as we look at DeMar Hamlin and we see him released from the hospital, I mean, it's incredibly inspiring. And what the Bills did, and I don't know how you pick against the Bills in these playoffs, playing with the kind of mojo that they've got. I'll take your phone calls. We got John Wilner coming up too later this hour. We'll talk about the Pac 12, we'll talk about Coach Prime and uh, some of the possible coaching movement. Is Lincoln Riley going to leave USC? We'll talk all about it. 503 417 7575 is the phone number. You got the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Kinzana on 750 The Game. I mean, say what you will about Roger Goodell, his league, the owners, league of denial. I mean, this is a uh, this is a league that's got some sins, right? Has committed some sins. But, man, the NFL, it wins. It wins in the late season. It wins in the postseason. Every game feels big, and the storylines are just phenomenal. And it's not just the uh, DeMar Hamlin storyline. I mean, there are just compelling storylines in Las Vegas, in San Francisco, in Kansas City, Miami. Uh, just drop into an NFL city, and you'll understand why the NFL is is king. Let's go to the phones. I want your takeaways from the NFL playoffs, from the NFL final regular season weekend, and how about the NFL season in general? 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Rick is in Eugene, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Go ahead, Rick. Hey, I just wanted to get your take on uh, on uh, Brandon Staley this this Sunday, maybe you already covered it. I don't know. I thought having Justin Herbert, Mike Williams, and all those starters um, playing in a meaningless game was the most boneheaded thing you can do. And as a result, he's got three starters hurt. Yeah, and he offered no apology after the game. He said it was easy. These aren't easy decisions. And I don't know, Stephen and Peter, if you're in his position, so Williams goes out with a back injury, had to be helped off the field. X-rays are negative. It is anticipated he'll be available to play. So, I don't know, maybe you just kind of, that one you go, hey, you know what, uh, you got away with one. But Joey Bosa left the game after an awkward play. Kenneth Murray left the game in the second quarter. Um, but they say Bosa was removed from the game and didn't come back because that was the plan. But, you know, this was, uh, this was a team that, you know, is going to finish, they were going to win anyway, and they are going to finish the regular season 10-7. and seven. And they're going to be the five seed. They were already the five seed before they kicked off. Um, you know, Staley said they only had 48 guys. They wanted to make sure that they competed a little bit. But I don't know. I, I think it potentially does look bad. Keenan Allen says, hey, I signed up for 17 games. I'm going to play 17 games. What do you guys make of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree on both both instances, right? Like, I think if the players want to play, like, who who are you to say, no, you can't play? But at the same time, you, it is possible to not play in your players. The Giants proved that last week as well, Week 18. Like They did not play any of their players on offense, and a lot of their players on defense did not play that matter because they had nothing 
to gain or lose. What would you have done? You're the head coach of the Chargers. Do you I, play those guys or not? No, I sent them out. I think it's too uh, risky at that point, uh, Just especially in a sport like football where injuries happen all the time. And especially with the Chargers who haven't made the playoffs in a few years, like you can't be losing these type of guys. And a lot of these guys are coming off injuries already during the season. Don't. There's no reason to risk it. So I, I think I'm on the side that they should not have played them. Um, and I think Brandon State is kind of making some excuses there. Peter, you play him or not? My mic was uh, not yeah. working there. Yeah, I probably do play him. It, is, it sounds like he was going to play Bosa for a half when he tweaked it. That's sort of the direction I would go is split the difference. I mean, look, injuries happen. The guys play. You do the best you can. You sort of deal with it. But, I mean, Bosa should be well-rested. I don't know how banged up he's going to be. It's one of those fluke things. So I give him a half. I let the crowd see the stars, you know, and then I sit him for the second half. For me, it's a TBD thing because, all right, we have the benefit of hindsight with this thing. Like, we, we aren't Staley. Like, we're not the head coach of the Chargers, but we're all sort of nitpicking his decision. But here's here's where I stand. Like, if his team shows up in the playoffs and they have unusual rhythm and look terrific while, like, the New York Giants sputter, look out of rhythm, look like a team that took a week off, and, you know, the Chargers win their playoff game and the Giants don't, it's another conversation, isn't it? Like, we might all go, hey, you know what? Staley looks pretty good here. But if they come out and they don't have key players available and they lose this game, it's totally on him because he didn't have to play them. Does, like, it, he, go ahead. Does it matter what sport it is? Because, I, you know, maybe in football there's a little more rhythm. It's more of a team game where basketball, baseball, same type of thing. Like, you don't necessarily have to play every single day. You can take a day off, but football – it's more of a rhythmic team type of atmosphere. So, like Peter said, play him a half. Maybe that's better? I don't know because we've just seen uh, – to me, it's a bigger layoff for the college football teams that finish the regular season and have to wait several weeks for a bowl game. I often wonder with the college football playoff, like why are they not starting that a week or ten days after the end of the regular season? Like why are we waiting all the way until you know New Year's Eve to see a semifinal game and when the college season is ending the first week of December? Because I wonder if the Ohio State or the TCU or Michigan or Georgia effort that we saw on New Year's Eve was their best football because of the layoff. Uh, in the NFL with one week, I don't know if one week is going to kill your rhythm, but it's kind of what the, you know, the Chargers talked about. They said, look, you know, as a competitor, you want to be there. Uh, you know, not playing for a week can take away from your rhythm. I'll wait and see on that. We have the benefit of hindsight, but I'm I'm with you, Stephen. If I'm Staley, I know I'm the five seed before we kick off. I'm not putting Justin Herbert out there for more than maybe a quarter, maybe a series, maybe hey, break a sweat. We're gonna go through. Uh, you know, we're gonna work on something, and then we're gonna get you out of the game. And I certainly wouldn't want Bosa in there, given you know that he has been in and out. And I I just kind of I really questioned the logic of it. Mark is in Portland. Mark, uh, what's on your mind? Well, yeah, Mike Williams as well. He's pretty much injury prone. Um, yep. So I would have rested all those guys as much as possible. It seemed like he played them most of the game. Um, I think in the in the NFC, it's going to be San Francisco and Philly. I I just you know you never know. There's if there's one team out there that you don't know who's going to show up. Minnesota, if they're if they're the good version of Minnesota shows up, they're capable of beating anyone, and that's what makes the NFL so great. And then the AFC, it's going to be really tough for Buffalo. I know that's the sentimental favorite, but 
they got to play uh, Cincinnati to to get to Kansas City probably. Yeah. And uh, I just don't. I just don't see anybody beating Mahomes. He just seems like he's playing really well this year at home. So yeah, I like the I Chiefs like to win it all. Kansas City. Yeah, yeah, I'm the Super Bowl. Yeah, I have that same Super Bowl, and I like I, I lean Chiefs because I just I saw that earlier in the season. I don't think the 49ers were close to them early in the season, but I I you don't like the Cowboys. I think the Cowboys could be a little dangerous. Uh, man, they 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 kind of went in the tank yesterday when they had a, a chance at a better seating. So I, I just don't understand that. You know, I know that's the crazy thing about the NFL. I mean, I've lost my butt betting on games this year. You, you can't you can't predict. I cannot believe Aaron Rodgers lost yesterday. <laughs> I just can't believe that. That shocked me because Detroit really had nothing to play for except to eliminate Green Bay, and that was enough as it as it turned out. And you know, I'm a Pittsburgh fan, and they were. <laughs> Right to the end, you know, hoping the Jets could beat Miami. So it was, it was a lot of fun yesterday, like you said. Yeah, the NFL I, is just great, John. Yeah, it really gets is. It. They get it. I hope college football can steal some of that thunder when they expand. But certainly, you know, we have the equivalent of the college Super Bowl happening tonight. And, guys, you know, we've talked around this a whole bunch in the last week. But I really like Georgia. And I think, you know, the point spread suggest double-digit favorite. Georgia's been there, defending national champion. I think I didn't think they played their best game, certainly not their best first half against Ohio State. And I kind of – I think TCU's got some playmakers. Their skill position players are fantastic. But I just don't think they, that they will handle the physicality of Georgia in a game where Georgia will clearly show up. How do you see tonight's game? Yeah, I'm with you on this one. I do like Georgia laying the points. Um I think it's going to be a pretty dominant effort here by Georgia. I, I really think TCU has gotten uh, very fortunate in a lot of games this season that they've played. You remember going back and they made a game when you field goal with basically one second on the clock. Uh, earlier in the year, they played Kansas State, and they were down, I believe, 31-10 to 10 or 28-10 to 10 in the first half, came back and scored the next like you know 35 points to win that one. I just think the speed and the size of Georgia is going to give TCU problems. Now, the one thing that TCU has going for them is Max Duggan at quarterback. He's a really good player. Georgia has shown uh, you know, a little bit of vulnerability in the back half of the secondary the last couple of games, but I don't think it's going to be that much of a problem in this one. I, I do think Georgia uh, takes care of it pretty easily. Yeah, I, I think TCU used up their magic against Michigan. I mean, that was a great game. It was a great, great win, but Georgia's on a completely different level, even if they're not necessarily as great as they were next year. I like Georgia to cover. Yeah, I just think they're – their playmakers are they're too they're explosive their their front seven is good i think uh you know i watch tcu i i, I really like their receivers uh, they have great depth at running back uh you know their defensive backs are good but i think george is going to win this game running the football and stopping the tcu run i think they'll make tcu one dimensional and we'll see a whole bunch of passes from tcu but um you know look it just doesn't have the same draw, nor did the semifinals have the same draw as like an AFC-NFC championship weekend. And some of that is because the NFL just does a better job of positioning these teams, creating these storylines. I mean, I even think that the uh, the NFL broadcast partners themselves are are invested in this. Like last night I was watching the Sunday night football game. I was watching because, you know, I, I saw the way C the Seattle sort of was grinding, and again, I'm going to say it, man, Seahawks fans, 
your team is agonizing to watch. They're agonizing. They make they do so many little things wrong, and I think Pete Carroll has to be pulling his hair out uh, watching this. But they got to the playoffs. But I'm watching the post game as Aaron Rodgers is kind of hugging players, and the you know the cameras staying on him, and Sunday Night Football, and and uh, I you know the broadcaster, I think it was Mike Tirico on the broadcast. He says, "Oh, did you hear what Aaron Rodgers just said?" He, you know, he told the uh, the Lions player, you know, I'm going to keep this jersey. You know, sort of fueling the speculation that, you know, everybody's talking about with, you know, is Rodgers done? Is he retiring? Is he is he uh, going to end up with another team next year? Like, the broadcast partners are in on it. And I don't find myself at the end of college football games watching the players on the field shaking hands with each other because, you know, I'm like, I barely know them. So I, I just think the NFL gets a lot of little things right, good on them for getting it. Uh, coming up, John Wilner, the Bay Area News Group, is going to be joining us. He and I did a podcast interview today with Rick George, the uh, University of Colorado Athletic Director. Uh, Rick George uh, talked to us at length about the uh, hi- the hiring of Deion Sanders. Uh, also, um, you know, he talked about the Pac-12 conference and the potential. Uh, you know, I asked him, did did you ever engage with any Big 12 members? Wilner and I uh, did this as part of the Kanzano and Wilner podcast. You can get that podcast episode wherever you get a podcast. But Wilner's going to come on and talk about that interview. Plus, we'll preview Georgia TCU. I want to know what he thinks of the game tonight. Does anybody like TCU? Does anybody think TCU can hang around? Nobody thought they could against Michigan either, and here they are. But uh, Wilner will join us coming up. you got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Do you subscribe to the Canzano and Wilner podcast or Canzano and Wilner The Podcast? Well, you should. We've done 33 podcast episodes uh, centering around the Pac-12 conference. They're all available on uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, SoundCloud, uh, where else? Um, wherever you get a podcast. I don't have to tell you where to get a podcast. If you if you don't know how to find a podcast, we're having another discussion. But go find that podcast, subscribe to it, share it with friends. We interviewed uh, Colorado Athletic Director Rick George today. I'll play a couple snippets of our interview with Rick George I- in this segment. So you can just, I can whet your appetite a little bit. But uh, my co-host on that podcast, John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, is joining us now. John Wilner, happy New Year. How are you doing? Same to you. Uh, I don't know. Should we do a podcast about how to find podcasts? That's, I feel like I would be, you know, I, I feel like I would be telling people how to set their VCR clock if I did that. Yes. I mean, like, yes. I need to tell my parents where to find a podcast. Like, I could have that conversation with my mom. But I feel like I'd be insulting some of the audience by having that conversation publicly. You you have a very upscale, high tech, savvy audience, no doubt about it. My audience is good looking too. I got to tell you, Peter, yeah. this audience is better looking, and it's smarter than other sports radio audiences. I don't know if that's saying much, but it's saying it. Uh, can I ask you a question, real quick? Because this came up in our household a few minutes ago, just before the start of the show, and I want to ask you your experience on this. I'm just going to throw this at you. Our our eight year old came home from school. And she likes to bring her lunch to school. And uh, Stephen and Peter, you guys can join this conversation as well with John Wilner. Um, We noted that our 8-year-old ate almost none of her lunch. And she ate a granola bar. 
That's what she had while she was at school. She just didn't touch her lunch. Now, I'm not mad at her for it. I want to know what happened there or if she's not hungry or what is going on. Is she distracted at lunch? Do, do your kids eat what you pack for them? Do they eat a meal at lunch at school? You know, my 11-year-old son, uh, sometimes that happens to him. And it's not the, it's not the lack of uh, hunger, but he ends up, you know, chatting with friends or whatever and runs out of time. Uh, or, or, you know, they have a lunch recess combo. He starts playing Foursquare, just runs out of time. And then, you know, by the last hour or so of school, he hadn't eaten enough. He's hungry, and he's, uh, he struggles a little bit. So it's a problem. But it's, I, I would ask your daughter, was it because she didn't have enough time because she was chit-chatting with her friends, or mm-hmm. was she just not hungry? Yeah, we, we've gone through this yeah. with my 8-year-old. Yeah, uh, we just said we he, we figured out that he eats a he was a really slow eater, and so okay. his friends are already going out and playing recess, and he wants uh, to catch up, so he doesn't eat as much. Need to get on it. I know. To, yeah, she is a bit of a slow eater. Like I note it. I note at dinner time, I'll almost be done, and she's talking. She's a talker. So maybe that's the issue. Peter, is your kid eating lunch? For the most part, and we've had a conversation, you got to start with the protein and the veggies. You can have the little, say, the granola bar, the sweet. And I'm okay with a few apple slices or pieces of fruit being left over. Sometimes we'll have maybe a third of an apple left. But we had to game plan it. This is what you start with. This is what you follow with. There you go. John Wilner, this is uh, hard-hitting stuff. That's why we put on this three-hour radio show to help parents who have kids coming up. But she came through the door. She had a massive headache. She said... I said, have you drink? Have you had any water? No. I happen to have a bottle of water. I gave it to her. I said, drink this water. She pounded it. And I was like, she's dehydrated. And Anna later was like, she also didn't eat her lunch. And I was like, well, no wonder she feels like crap. You know, she came through the door. She's got no fuel in the tank. Yep, and it hurts. It affects them in, you know, in the classroom and behavior and concentration, all that stuff. That's why we pack. We always pack the four food groups with my son. We've got... Uh, Grease, caffeine, sugar, and brown sugar every lunch. <laughs> Everything's included. Hey, I heard, like, uh, Sally Jenkins, uh, Washington Post columnist one time, told me that, you know, she always, she's, she figured out in early in her career that athletes talk about nutrition all the time. Like, we people you cover, they bring up nutrition, right? Like, you're talking to people, they bring up, hey, got to hydrate, got to rest, we got to, we got to, you know, our training table. But journalists who cover the games, do you ever – Think in those terms because you have to be on game and your brain has to be right when you're on deadline after a game. And I always thought, like, that that's an interesting conversation. Like, should I be – should I have a training table instead of a instead of a hot dog at halftime and a soda? Should I be packing, like, you know, nutritious food so that my brain is right when I need it to be right? Well, the other thing is that, the, you know, most teams have their pregame meal, like, four hours before kickoff, four hours before tip-off, whatever it is. You know, journalists, a lot of time, you're eating right before the game or during the game, and so you end up getting that heavy stomach, and you just get mm. tired, and then you got to pump the caffeine to overcome that, and it's just you get into this vicious cycle of, of poor health, and that's basically been the last 30 years of my life. There you go. John Wilner, Bay Area News Group. That's why you tune in. Let's talk about, uh, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the Pac-12 Tonight we're going to get a national championship game. Pac-12 will not participate in it. How far away from tonight's title game does the Pac-12 feel to you? 
You know, I think TCU makes it feel a little closer because TCU's picked seventh in the Big 12. Big 12's not very good. I mean, it's not like Georgia-Bama or Georgia-Ohio State where you're looking at all these five-star athletes that are headed into the NFL draft. TCU's a lot like most of the Pac-12 programs in that regard. So the, the difference is TCU was able to get through the Big 12 season, a mediocre league, uh, get through the Big 12 season undefeated. The Pac-12 has had teams just like TCU in the past, and they've always stumbled once or twice, and they couldn't quite get through undefeated uh, to, to qualify for the playoff. I, you know, it, to me, TCU is kind of like an everyman that has, uh, you know, divided themselves into this party that is typically reserved for the teams with all the five stars. Lincoln Riley has showed up to the national championship game. He'll be there. He's getting some early camera time. Why is Lincoln Riley hanging out at SoFi Stadium for the title game? I get it he's in L.A., but is he is he up to something? Well, I mean, I'm sure he just wants to be seen, right? It's a good chance for him to draw draw some attention to his program. Uh, that's my guess. He probably also, you know, I don't know if he knows is friends with people on one of the staffs or players, but you know it's that's that's where all the attention is right now, and I'm sure he wants to get on ESPN. That's for sure. Let's talk a little bit about Rick George. You and I did an interview with him today. Why was it important for us to talk to Rick George in your mind? Well, I think don't you think the Deion Sanders hire is? I was trying to think when was the last time there was a hire like this in the conference, and I don't know that there's ever been. Right? It's it's the same level of attention that the Lincoln Riley hire got last year at SC, except Dion is, you know, he's a far less accomplished coach, but he's this, you know, he's a, a media star. He's a sports icon. Uh, there's never been a hire like it. And, and it's generated so much attention for Colorado and the Pac-12. I, I was just real curious as to pick Rick George's brain about, what went into the hiring process? What what did he see that made him think that Sanders could do more than attract attention, that he could actually coach and win at the Power Five level? He came away from the conversation kind of thinking that Rick George saw a huge upside, that you know Colorado could do the same old, same old, but he took a swing. I mean, it's a swing for the fences, and I like that. Their last swing was a strikeout, basically, right? Carl Durrell lasted two, a little over two years, a little over two seasons. And in some ways is the antithesis of Deion Sanders. Very, very low-key, low energy. He's not going to, you know, rally your fans. He's not going to generate any attention for your program. So they kind of went ahead and did the opposite with Dion. He's, you know, he's a... Uh, all about the spotlight and and grabbing putting putting Colorado in the headlines and and on ESPN and all that stuff. So they they you know you tend to try to compensate if you make a mistake on a hire. Sometimes you try to compensate by going the other direction, and that's I think what Dion is. They've got a tremendously difficult non-conference schedule next season. They open with Nebraska. They play TCU. They could be playing the defending national champion. Uh, or at least, uh, you know, a finalist. Uh, what's what's your uh, over-under for Colorado victories in Season 1 for Coach Prime? You know, I thought your number uh, that you offered during the podcast was a 5, 5.5. I think that's probably pretty good. 
it's tough when you've got two difficult non-conference games, right? Because if you're under 500 out, outside of league play, then you got to go over 500 just to get to a bowl game. So to me, it's part of it's about the record, but a lot of it's just about are they going to be competitive and are they going to be competitive against the good teams in the, in the conference, right? Against SC and against Utah and against Oregon. Uh, you know, so if they end up four and eight, but they're playing those teams down to the wire, that's, that's a pretty good improvement. And I think that's a realistic, that's a realistic goal for them. I want to play a cut from the, uh, from the interview. We, you know, I think you asked him, uh, kind of about the, the, you know, the, the pac 12 and, you know, the, the, how the playoff may have impacted or changed the calculus. And here's what Rick George said, the expanded playoff. Going to 12 teams, how does that change things? I mean, I don't know why you would want to go and join a conference where there's 16 to 18 when you can be in a conference of 10 to 12. Um, your opportunity, particularly when the top six-rated conferences have automatic bids and the top four get buys, um, why would you leave? Is he signaling to us that they may not expand, or if they do, it's only one or two? Yeah, I think it was more, I mean, it could be. It also struck me as him saying, you know, Colorado has no intention of leaving for the Big 12 uh, because all of a sudden in that case, you know, Big 12 could be a 16 or 18 conference. Mm -hmm. And I I think that there's a lot to be said for for his his point. You know, the playoff is a much bigger deal now uh, once it expands, and you do need to take into account you know, in terms of your conference affiliation, what's going to give you the best chance to get into the playoff? Now, the counterargument is, well, if you're going to get, you know, Big Ten money, then that that uh, might make it worthwhile, right? But the Big 12 is not necessarily offering Big Ten money. So to me, it was more about, hey, Colorado wants to stay in the Pac-12 and compete for the Pac-12 championship and try to get into a playoff. I asked him about the noise from the Big 12, the possibility that there were meetings between the Four Corners schools. Uh, Here's what Rick George said on that front. Look, the Four Corners have not talked to the Big 12, at least this corner hasn't. And um, I I think, you know, in our room, and I talk about our AD room, I think there's a lot of commonality amongst the ADs in the room. And we're confident that with the right media deal, we become a very attractive uh, conference and um, and we have a lot of confidence in, in George and, and his ability to negotiate a great deal. And, and yeah, you know, when, when UCLA and USC left, I think everybody looks over their shoulder a little bit, right? Uh, because you're like, what's next? And, you know, where are we going to be? And, you know, so I think in the initial phases, there was a lot of anxiety, which there should have been, um, you know, because we all care. And, and um, you know, but I think as things started to settle down, you know, there's some really cool heads in that in that room. And, and, you know, we met a lot. We talked a lot. We have a lot of respect for each other across the room. And um, and I think that was helpful to get us where we are. And now it's time for us to go out, get a great media rights deal and cement our place uh, in, in college football or in college athletics, period. When you uh, when you hear him talking there, Wilner, you know, can any of these athletic directors, can they trust each other? I mean, you talked about the commonality, but, I, you know, I go back to, you know, USC and UCLA were in that room once upon a time, and, you know, they, they stabbed uh, the rest of the members in the back and took off. 
Yeah, that's the thing is everybody could say they're they're all in and they want to, the Pac-12 to continue forward uh, in solidarity, but at the same time, they all have a plan B or a plan C because uh, they just don't know what George Klyukov is going to come back with, right? And if and if it's a if it's a good deal, they're going to stick together, and if it's not a good deal. They're going to look at, look at those plan B and plan C's and see what they can put together. That's the thing. You have to, for the, for the security and future of your school, you, you have to have a, a backup plan, right? They all do. We're talking to John Wilner, Bay Area News Group. Uh, Wilner, Cam Rising, Utah quarterback, uh, announces officially today that he will return to Utah. He's going to stay there. He said his mind made up uh, maybe uh, before the Rose Bowl even. Uh, what do you make of the stable of quarterbacks in this conference next season? Well, best maybe that it's ever been. Uh, certainly best it's been in 30 or 40 years. And it could be, you know, it depends in part, I think, on how some of the newcomers do, right? Shadur Sanders, Deion's kid, how's he going to do at Colorado? Uh, DJ Youngalele at Oregon State, how's he going to do? But just the returning guys alone make it uh should make for you know super exciting and entertaining fall right it's all about the quarterbacks good quarterbacks equals good offense equals entertaining games and there was a ton of entertaining games and it it, you know it should be a lot like that uh next year too all right with rising back uh i have to put utah at the top of the board i say until you beat the champ they're the champs who do you have uh right now in uh you know if you had to if you had to today, gun to your head, pick a, a conference champion, a preseason champion, who are you picking? See, I'm with you 99% on Utah, but I am just not sure how healthy he is, right? I mean, Kyle Whittingham said that it was a serious leg injury, right? I mean, I, I think a lot of people are guessing it's an ACL. So, to me, that's the big question. Is rising healthy either for the season opener or at least is he healthy when conference play starts or is he not 100 percent until you know the middle of october and i think that's a big question and and we don't know the answer yet because utah has not really disclosed the details of the injury but certainly if he's healthy i think you kind of got to pick utah uh i agree you know until the, until you beat the champ you got to keep, keep picking the champ yeah and you look at you know the first six games of their season it's florida at baylor uh, at Arizona, at Oregon State, at USC, potentially uh, to start their season, depending on the rotation. If they fall in rotation, hey, Rick George talked about the schedule. Do you uh, do you think the holdup on the release of the schedule is is mostly about what the Pac-12 has not released their schedule? It's normally out in December for those who aren't as tuned in. I think it is about. Them, uh, some schools were unhappy. This is just my guess. Schools were unhappy with the lineup of games. Just, yeah. hey, you know, you got to get cut us a little bit of a break here, right? I mean, the Pac-12 is not out to play favorites, but what the Pac-12, what the conference office is supposed to do is give everybody a fair shot, right? Not put any teams at competitive disadvantages with the schedule, and so they're moving along in the late fall like they always do. And then all of a sudden, all these quarterbacks start announcing they're coming back. And the conference looks like it's going to be a beast next year. And I just 
I'm going to guess that a couple of schools thought, hey, man, that that's, you've got to rework this. You can't ask us to do play X yeah. and then Y yeah. and then Z in that order. Amen. So to me, it's probably yeah. something about that. John Wilner, thank you. Appreciate you, my friend. All righty. Thanks a lot. Listen to the Canzano and Wilner podcast. You want to hear the rest of Rick George. Leave it right here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our big splash, uh, we do it every day on the program. We tell you the one thing you need to know about uh, today, no different. We've got it for you. Let's uh, let it rip. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Well, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin was released from the University of Cincinnati Medical Center today. I'm going to say it again. He was released from the hospital after spending almost a week there following his cardiac arrest on the field at Paycor Stadium last Monday night. The news uh, was shared by the doctors, uh, the team that was treating him. Uh, He flew from Cincinnati to Buffalo today. He's been transferred to Buffalo General Medical Center. He'll continue to get treatment there. Uh, you know, doctors uh, say that Hamlin jumped up and down on the opening kickoff return touchdown uh, that uh, the Buffalo Bills turned in on uh, Sunday against uh, the New England Patriots. Uh, you couldn't make it up if you wanted to. Uh, it's uh, great theater. I'm glad he's doing well. I'm glad he's stable. I'm glad he's making significant progress. This is an uplifting story, and we need more of these. Uh, Punch and Audio is coming up. Anna's going to join us. Uh, we're going to talk about bull riding. Leave it here. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. We moseyed over to uh, Moda Center on Saturday night as a family. Our uh, our two uh, youngest daughters have uh, gotten themselves into the uh, PBR, or at least they like to watch it on TV because they do like a blend of farm animals and sports as much as any uh, eight and six year old probably do. You guys ever seen bull riding? I cannot say that I've ever been to a bull riding competition. Don't they have that at the uh, St. Paul Rodeo? I think I've seen it there. Yeah. Yeah. It's not something. I mean, look, I actually always wonder when I see a sport like that, like, you know, I didn't participate in that. It's not a thing I did. We had a steer. I never thought to myself, you know, it would be a cool idea. Climb on the back of that thing and see how mad it gets. No, I never thought that. But, uh, you know, I got a lot of respect for the bull riders themselves. I'd love to get one of these cats on the show because this PBR thing, it's got a little Americana to it. I didn't know what to expect. And I've been to a rodeo, but this is just bull riding. It's professional bull riding. So uh, surprise the girls Saturday night. Got some tickets to go see this thing. It's amazing what they do to Moda Center. They bring in like 5,000 cubic yards of manure and put it over where the court is. I'm sure it still smells that way. 
And then they bring in the bulls. They bring in a horse. They got, you know, the equivalent of the modern-day rodeo clowns in the, uh, in the ring, I guess, so to speak. And then, and then uh, these uh, insane people try to ride these bulls for eight seconds, and then they get judged on it. And they televised the thing. And uh, I, I was highly entertained. Uh, we'll talk about it more with Anna when she pops into the studio later. But uh, I thought to myself, like, when I see a sport like that, I always kind of wonder, like, maybe I was born to do that. Like, Stephen, maybe you were born to be a professional bull rider. Like, you could have been the Michael Jordan on the PBR circuit. And you don't know it because you never tried it. Like, maybe you could be, I don't know if you play billiards. Maybe you could be the best billiards player in the world, but you never tried it. Um, you ever think that way? I appreciate the confidence you have in me. Uh, I do, actually. I see, like, a lot of, like, Vegas acts or, like, just talent competition. You see those crazy people that are good at just one specific thing. And it, I think, how did they figure that out? Like, how are they good at, yeah. you know, putting swords down their body? Like, those type of things. I do wonder that a lot. I had a friend uh, who uh, reached out to me, and he said, you know, uh, on the side of the freeway, how they have those barriers that are concrete barriers that, you know, they're only about six inches wide, and uh, they're all up and down the freeway. Apparently, his car broke down, and he climbed up on the barrier because he didn't want to get hit, and he was standing on top of the barrier, and he began to walk back and forth where his car was, and he said, you know, I never realized maybe this is my thing. Maybe I should have been a tightrope walker. Like he said, I had incredible balance. I think I can do this. And I'm like, you know, how like how does a bull rider figure out he's a bull rider? How does a pickleball player figure out they're a pickleball player? They try things. They, you know, you go out, you try it, you try to play golf, and you go, nope, this is not for me. But I turned to Anna at uh, one point of the bull riding. The girls were on the edge of their seat because they're watching. You know, actually, the eight-year-old told me she's rooting for the bulls, not the riders. <laughs> so she was happy when the bulls bucked the riders off. I was just hoping nobody was going to get hurt, like seriously hurt, because you know how dangerous that sport is. But I turned to Anna and I said, hey, you know, maybe this is our thing as a family. Maybe we found our sport, <laughs> bull riding. Maybe I need to get a cowboy hat and get some uh, proper, uh, you know, wranglers or something, some boots. I felt a little out of place in my sneakers, in my, in my jeans and my sweatshirt at the plate. But I, it, I thought it was a really interesting crowd. Talked to some of the ushers. And then every time, I couldn't help it, but every time a bull rider got on a bull and only made it about two seconds, I would whisper or mumble to myself, another first-round exit in this building. <laughs> Couldn't help it. Sorry. Let's play Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Huge NFL weekend. Naheem Hines had two kickoff return touchdowns for the Buffalo Bills against the Patriots. Jim Nance on the call. You can't make it up. Keep in mind, Damar Hamlin went down the previous Monday night. Here they are playing a weekend game. Buffalo Bills opening kickoff. Standing with DeMar, 
punching. And I know this is your time. You like to keep us updated. Yeah, we'll keep everybody posted on Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Miami and the Jets were underway as New England decided to defer after winning the toss. And here's Hines on the run back, breaking a tackle and taking it past midfield. And down the sideline he goes. This is storybook. An opening kickoff return for Tamar Hamlin. And this place is absolutely going wild. Cincinnati can move up to the two. And Buffalo could fall back to the three if the Bills lose here. Cincinnati goes on to a win, which you might expect. Baltimore shorthanded. Here comes Hines again. Oh, my goodness. Can he do it twice? Is this for real? Can you believe it? Even a little Dion strut to the end zone. 101 yards. 101 yards on the second one. 96 on the first one. Naheem Hines, two kickoff return touchdowns. Buffalo wins, beats New England. It's been a weird season for the Patriots. They lost that weird game in Vegas against the Raiders where they were headed to overtime and then, uh, you know, blew it. They had two kickoff return touchdowns. Bill Belichick did not look happy, but the people in Buffalo did not care. A little bit of poetry there. Mike Florio talking about Sean McVay. Is the Rams coach done? He's mulling his future. He's going to take some time. Here's Mike Florio talking about what he thinks is going to happen. Punch it. He steps down, and there is a growing sense that he will. My understanding, it's not because of burnout or he wants to get into TV. He won his Super Bowl, and now he's looking at a multi-year rebuild that he just doesn't want to be a part of. And if he does choose to step away, think about the ripple effects that this may cause. Defensive tackle Aaron Donald almost retired last year. What would he do? And quarterback Matthew Stafford, who's had plenty of injuries, has a $57 million guarantee that fully vests in March. Will the new coach want Matthew Stafford? Stafford or want to move on a lot of questions beginning with will Sean McVay be back look I think I think a lot of coaches go through this he's you know the the young is he still the youngest coach in the NFL or if if not he's one of the youngest but you're talking about you know a guy that even if he steps away from coaching and takes a decade off would still come back and be one of the 10 youngest coaches in the NFL like that's how young Sean McVay is on that sideline so I think we've seen coaches go through this. I think Dick Vermeil is the ultimate burnout case where he talked about what it takes to get to a Super Bowl. Um, and let's let's make no mistake, like, you know, the Rams, the way they built that team in free agency right before last season, two seasons ago, rather, with Matthew Stafford and, and you know, adding him to a, a team that, that brought in some other hired guns. I mean, they gave up draft picks. They got players. They won the damn thing. Give them credit. But, yeah, he's 36 years old. He could take 10 years off, come back, and he'd still be probably right in the middle of the pack age-wise. So I don't think he's done coaching. I think it's a rough season. I don't think anybody thought 5-12 and 12 was going to be, you know, where they landed. But, you know, this is a year after he signed an extension through 2026. And I think a lot of coaches at the end of the year, this is a bad time to ask a guy how you're feeling. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want to ask a coach. You don't want to ask anybody who has a job that sort of has that kind of you know, it, it, it sort of rises to the end. It's like a wave that crashes in week 15, 16, 17 these, these, these days in the NFL. You know, beat reporter covering the team. You don't ask him the day after the season, well, how are you feeling? Because that person's going to be like, I'm burned out. I don't ever want to see another football game again. So Sean McVay, give him some time. This is not about TV, I don't think. I think this is a guy who really loves to coach. I think he just is probably fried still from the – from the long run to the Super Bowl a year ago.
doctors in Cincinnati at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center say that DeMar Hamlin jumped up and down after the opening kickoff return touchdown. You heard the clip of Naheem Hines returning those two touchdowns. Here are the doctors talking about what they saw in the ICU. Punch it. So, you know, we have permission from him and his family to, to let you know that he did watch the game on Sunday. Um, he was beyond excited um, and feels very supported by the outpouring of love from across the league, um, and especially from the Buffalo area. Um, we've learned this week that the Bills Mafia is a very real thing. Um, and we all feel the love from, from you all in uh, Western New York. Uh, but, you know, he, he watched the game on uh, yesterday um, when the uh, opening kickoff was run back. He jumped up and down, got out of his, uh, his uh, chair, um, set, I think, every alarm off in the ICU in the process. Um, but he was fine. It was just an appropriate reaction to a very exciting play. Um, so he, he very much enjoyed it and uh, enjoys the, the support from everyone. Love that. Would have loved to see the scene. But I just love that, you know, the story's going to have a encouraging ending. And I'll give a shout-out to not just the doctors that, that worked on DeMar Hamlin, but doctors and nurses and first responders uh, who are listening to this show across our state, across the Pacific Northwest, into California, who uh, all do this kind of work on a daily basis uh you're fighting a good fight out there and uh, i'm glad that the doctors and the paramedics and the team trainers were there for demar hamlin i'm also grateful for the uh, doctors and nurses and medical professionals that are there uh, on a daily basis for the rest of us uh the lions knocked the packers out here's how it sounded fourth down packers hoping to get the ball back Lions going, I don't think so. Mike Tirico on the call. Punch it. The season comes down to a snap. And Goff is looking to throw it. He throws it. It's caught for the first down by DJ Chark. And you can hear them from all the way in Seattle. The Lions have come into Lambeau. And they've knocked the Packers down and out. Packers down and out. Aaron Rodgers uh, wispy after the game. Also kind of wispy. It was interesting to uh, to kind of see, like, you know, the range of emotion that everybody saw. Jamal Williams in the postgame. Lions beat the Packers. Williams gets 17 touchdowns, NFL leader in touchdowns. Breaks Barry Sanders' team record, 16 rushing touchdowns from 1991. Jamal Williams in the postgame, very emotional. Also kind of funny. Punch it. You set the franchise record. You broke Barry Sanders' record. What does that mean to you? Uh, my great-grandfather died on me. I'll just dedicate this to him. I'll just proud. I'm just grateful to do this for him. My grandfather, he was 92, but I'm just grateful for him to be in my life, and I'm grateful to be able to play football and do this for him. So... There's a lot of memories, a lot of emotion happening right now, but I'm just grateful. I'm grateful to be able to play this game for my great-grandfather, and I'm glad that he's looking down on me, and I know I'm making him proud. You said this ball's for him? Yeah, this is for him. Another thing, stop playing us, man. We made, we the Detroit Lions. We the Detroit Lions. Stop playing with us. I don't even watch TV, but I heard everybody already picked, their, picked the Packers over us. Stop playing with us. That's all I got to say, man. Don't let these tears fool you. There's all dog around this mug. I'm good. <laughs> I love it. And I always love when players go, 
You know, we don't read. We don't watch. I don't watch TV, but I'm mad about what you what you said about me. I find that funny. In the uh, All-American Bowl, it was Aiden Childs, Oregon State signee, who caught an 81-yard touchdown pass. By the way, Dante Moore had four touchdowns. East beat the West 55-17. Who cares? Punch it. Again, former athlete here, current head coach at Notre Dame. East squad up 14-3, and that's a heck of a move in the pocket, and this will be a touchdown for the East. Ruben Owens, the number one tailback in the nation. You'll see Morgan out of Texas A&M. The catch and the run for a touchdown. Hopefully that was Mark Fletcher. And he'll be on his way to Miami. You referenced the pretty move in the pocket, Paul. Charles keeping his eyes down the field, climbing vertically into the pocket. You love those mechanics as a passer. Doesn't run sideways. And as he climbed vertically, it drew the eyes of the defensive backfield towards him. That opened up the lane down the field for Mark Fletcher. 6'2", 225 in the open field. Aiden Childs, uh, 6'4", 195, dual threat quarterback that Oregon State has signed. He's going to get a chance to sit a little bit under DJ Uyunglele. And I think it's if he is patient, he's the guy of the future at Oregon State, at least on paper for now. Encouraging to see him doing some good things. Anna's going to pop in the studio. So much more ahead. we got a national championship game on the horizon as Georgia and TCU are playing. I like Georgia. Who do you like? Tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. Give me your score or forever hold your peace. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio. Anna, I, uh, I informed our audience earlier that uh, we took the kids to the PBR event at uh, Moda Center. For those who don't know what PBR is, it's professional bull riding. That is, uh, uh, you know, right out of the chute on uh, a 2,000-pound or 1,500-pound. I think it's more like an 1,800 to 2,000-pound bull that is uh, bucking. Like, it doesn't want to be there. And these bulls have names, by the way, uh, names like Black Friday. And uh, <laughs> they have cool names. Uh, what was your takeaway from the, uh, from the event at Moda Center on Saturday? Highly entertaining. Highly, highly entertaining. <laughs> um, as much for the bull riding, it was like the people watching yes. and the whole culture of the event. Like, I really, you know me, when I go to something like that, I'm just in full observation mode. I'm just taking it all in from the lady that's walking down the steps of the Moda Center with a, a full fur coat hoodie. Yeah, um, and a cowboy hat. And a cowboy hat and, and lots of rhinestones, yep. lots of uh, lots of sparkle. I noticed uh, the metal detectors as you went into the arena. Yeah. There were a lot of belt buckles. Oh, yeah. Because, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. it was like, beep, beep. Yeah. Oh, and I was like, what's going on? Oh, belt buckle guy. I know. There were a bunch of cowboys that had to take their belt buckles off. But um, <laughs> I felt, uh, I didn't feel out of place necessarily. No. And the kids, and, and look, as from a dad standpoint, I think our audience will uh, relate to this a little bit. I told you this on Saturday night. Uh, I didn't know if you were going to like it. 
Yeah. I didn't know if you were going to be entertained mm-hmm. or if you were going to go, this is the stupidest thing I've ever been to. <laughs> I didn't know if the six-year-old and eight-year-old were going to be entertained. Other than they had showed a passing interest in bull riding on TV. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it was some extreme bull riding show that you were watching with them. But it, yeah, somebody got, people are getting seriously hurt. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we drove over to Moda Center. <laughs> we were able to get a parking spot. Like, it wasn't like all jammed up. Yeah. We were able to walk into the building. The lines were okay. It didn't take us very long to get in. Well, the best part of going there yeah. was that we didn't tell the kids where we were going. And it was a total surprise to yeah. them. So as we're pulling into the Moda Center, they're asking us a million questions. And we're like, <laughs> well, what clues can you, you know, gather to figure out what this event is that we're going to? Six-year-old's like, why is everybody wearing a cowboy hat? And then the eight-year-old goes, is it cowboys on ice? <laughs> so we've been to the uh, Moda Center for Disney's on ice. And I'm like, uh, that would not be a bad idea. Cowboys on cowboys ice. Cowboys on ice. We given, like, hey, this came up. You know, the, during the event, the PA announcer made several times made reference to Yellowstone, uh-huh. the TV series. Uh, I think it's on Paramount. Uh, Yellowstone with uh, Kevin Costner. Do you think Yellowstone has helped this sport? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there. I I feel like there were a lot of people at that event who had never been to such an event. And basically have watched the show Yellowstone, went out and bought brand new jeans and cowboy boots and possibly a new hat and some flannel and showed up at this event just to kind of be part of it, just to feel like they were part of the show. <laughs> the, I was curious to know about the bull riders. And I noticed that they were from places. There were some locals. There was like a Woodburn. Yeah. There were some Eastern Oregons. Yeah. Um, there was... Uh, there was Southwest Washington too. Okay, Southwest yeah. Washington. There were, but then there was like Utah, Idaho, Colorado. And as I did more research, I realized these PBR events are very regional, and the prize money for the event, you know, the bull riders, the top bull riders are making good money because they get sponsorships and whatnot. But the prize money for the event, like on Saturday at Moda Center, you know, was like seven thousand dollars to the winner. Okay. Yeah. And and I was thinking to myself like. That's not enough money for me to get on this bowl in front of a bunch of people. For you to risk you know, violent death. Violent death a, or embarrassment. In a public way. And, you know, it was interesting to see the kid who won it. Uh, Connor Halverson was the guy who won the event. He's 20. You need to get him on the show. He weighs. Get him on the show. He weighs a buck 60. Mm-hmm. He's 160 pounds. Yeah. So. You know, I'm watching this going like, you know, if you are wiry, yeah, you've got good balance, mm-hmm. this might be your thing. Yeah. You know? If you don't mind a few broken ribs along the yeah. way. I noticed a lot of them are wearing helmets now, yeah. which I don't know what the rules are when it comes to bull riding and when the helmets started showing up. But I thought as a parent, I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. But we did. I mean, even in the time that we were there, we saw a fair number of riders that got stomped by the bull. Yeah, the guy who won it, he, he cleared $6,200. Okay. That's what he made okay. for the event. Aaron Williams was second. This dude, Aaron Williams, has a handlebar mustache. He's from Pismo. Get him on the show. Okay, Pismo Beach. He's 5'10", 140. Uh-huh. 5'10", 140. Yeah. This sport is not made for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm thinking that, like, if you want to be an astronaut when you're a little kid, that's cool to say that. 
But then you find out the astronauts are little, too. <laughs> really? The astronauts and bull riders. Do they have to be little? I didn't know that. I don't think you can be, like, like I don't think you can be, like, 6'4", 220 and be an astronaut. I don't know. I don't, I don't think you can. I don't think NASA takes big people to space. Aaron Williams from Pismo Beach, uh, originally when they announced him and I thought, oh, Pismo Beach, how good could he be? And then it turned out he was a really good writer. And yep. he's one of those people that's anywhere, like you look at him and it, he's like anywhere from 20 to 45 years old. You just don't know, you know. He's 25. Yeah. And then the other thing he did really well is he understands where the cameras are in yeah. the arena. Yeah. So Showman. it's one thing to ride the bull. Yes. Okay. And then at the end, what most of the riders do is if they're not tossed off, they jump off at yeah. eight seconds. Uh-huh. And then they run to the nearest rail yeah. and climb it so that they don't get pile driven by this animal. <laughs> right. And while they, they they corral it back into the back room at Moda Center where the Blazers are all dressing, presumably. Uh, <laughs> but um, it was uh, interesting to me that he stayed in the ring. Yeah. And he would find the camera and he would flex like he had just sacked the quarterback. Yes. And he would just do a yeah, like, he's making the promo real. He basically. knows. He's making. The he's promo gonna have real. like you know, first call heating and cooling wanting to sponsor him mm-hmm. and shoe mill and he gets it. He yeah. understands where the cameras are now. So let me go around the room here, because I asked this earlier. I, I asked Stephen, you know, kind of, you know, have you ever wondered when you watch a sport if you were born to do that sport but you never found it? <laughs> like, what if Michael Jordan never played basketball? Yeah. What if Michael Jordan was like, you know what? I really want to focus on chess. I'm in the sixth grade. Mom and dad, this is my thing. Or golf, this is my thing. Yeah. And he never plays basketball. There's no Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Okay? What if Tiger Woods says, you know, I, I want to play baseball. I want to be a pitcher. Yeah. And he tells Earl Woods, I hey, keep your golf clubs. So what sport have you ever watched and you've gone, I don't know. Maybe I could do that. What Olympic sport? I don't know. That, that you, you look at and you go, I think I could do that. What could you? What would you have wanted to go back to your childhood, and just be maniacal about training for in an attempt to be the best in the world at it? Uh, for me, it would be either golf or tennis. Uh, I think either of those sports, I I my, might have missed my calling. I don't know that I actually have the patience for golf or the resilience. I think I would frustrate myself and then want to quit. But tennis, I think, uh, I don't know, after watching the movie about the Williams sisters, yeah. uh, I was very inspired, and it's still on my bucket list for this year. You want to take some to, tennis lessons? I, I want to I learn tennis somehow, whether it's just hitting the ball around or... Not pickleball? Uh, no, no tennis, I think. I like the satisfaction of tennis. Big controversy going on in our uh, neighborhood with pickleball right now. <laughs> Uh, we'll talk about that coming up. Steven, uh, Peter, what are those sports uh, that you'd go back and you'd want to try? Uh, so I always, I always watch this during the Olympics, and it's handball. I've convinced myself that I, if I was born in a different country and handball was the number one sport, I could have been an Olympian handball player. Yeah, I've seen handball. If you're long and you play basketball, you'd be good at it. Yeah, I'm 6'2", 6'3". I'm yeah. strong. I, you know, I played baseball growing up. I have a great arm. Yep. I'm very tough. I feel like I really could have been a professional handball player. I think you could have, too. Thank you. If you were Bulgarian, you'd have, you'd have made it. You'd have yeah, been exactly. somebody. Bulgarian. Uh, Peter, what? Uh, what? Yeah, because in Eastern European countries, that's where it's big. No, that they play that at PE. 
Yeah. I, had, I covered the Olympics in Athens in 2004, and I was there, and I was like, John Branch and I, the New York Times and I both, we said, let's go see handball. Yeah. Just to see it. We uh-huh. weren't going to write about it. You have a media credential. Why not? Yeah. So we go, and we go, and we agree to meet at handball. Uh-huh. And we find ourselves in handball. We're the only Americans watching this sport because nobody else can understand it. And I'm watching it going, no wonder they play. Like, it should be huge, like in Oregon, where I have it no, rains. I have no visual for what handball is. It's essentially it's like good. dodgeball Dodgeball combined with, like, hand soccer. So, like, you're throwing yeah. a ball trying to get into a goal. Or a little just... bit of lacrosse to yeah. it, too. Okay. Yeah. There's an arc around the, bass, the uh, goal yeah. that you can't shoot from inside. So, like, somebody like Kevin... Durant uh-huh. could take off from outside the arc with yeah. the ball, and he's so long, he get halfway to the goal before he has to throw it by the goalie. Okay. And the ball itself, it can be palmed. Okay. You can bounce it one time. Interesting. It's a great PE game. It would be a great yeah. PE game for the Pacific Northwest, where it rains all the time and the kids are indoors. There's no net in the middle. There's goals on goals on each end, end of said field. Yeah, why would there be a net in the middle? I don't know. I don't know. I'm thinking volleyball. No. And, they, and they, like, jump from outside the key into the key so you can't touch the ground. So, like like you said, oh. Kevin Durant would, you know, lean in there and he'd be right next to the goal when he jumps in there. And there and there's, you know, certain rules about, you know, you can bounce it one time. Uh-huh. You can't just dribble down the court. Yeah. You have to pass it. Yeah. But you can bounce it one time. Huh. And so You it's can also very... check people, which is fun and physicality. Yeah. There's okay. some physicality to it. It's a little bit lacrosse, a little bit basketball. A little bit soccer, but it looks like it was invented by four kids on a rainy day mm-hmm. in their backyard. It's not too late, Stephen. That's all I'm going to say. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I think, think Stephen would be great at handball. Mm-hmm. That'd be a great story. They would be like, you know that Stephen Vaughn? Yeah. He is the greatest Bulgarian handball yeah. player of all time. And I can't wait for you to write, write about it. Never pays for a drink. <laughs> you know? Goes to the gulag or wherever and gets his drink down at the corner. The Nobody. No, he doesn't pay for a meal. You know, every uh, Perushki or whatever it is that they uh, eat over there in Bulgaria, he he goes free. Are you just making things up now? 100%. 100%. <laughs> Peter Sampson, what's your sport? Yeah, for, they don't give you drinks at the gulag, I don't think. But uh, uh, my, uh, my sport, without a doubt, man, it would be curling, watching curling in the oh. Olympics. Uh, growing up, I spent every Saturday afternoon yelling while frantically sweeping while I didn't want to do my chores. So why not go professional with it? Which role would you be on a curling team? There's very like there's the varied roles. The sweeper. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Without a doubt. For sure. The sweeper. I always look at my sport would be you know how they do the event in the Olympics where they run and then they shoot a rifle, mm-hmm. but they have to run. Yeah. I think I would have been really good at that. Yeah. If my parents wouldn't let me touch a BB gun. <laughs> Not get nowhere near a rifle. And I always said, like, what What if I'm the greatest shooter that ever lived? Yeah. What if I would have been, like, the uh, expert sniper right. or something? Right. But parents were like, no, it's dangerous. You're more liable to shoot yourself or your <laughs> sister or brother than anybody else. You're not even getting a BB gun. Mm-hmm. So I think if I could go back, when I, I watched the Olympics, and they're even in the Winter Olympics where they uh, they uh, ski, yeah, and then they have to stop and shoot. Yeah, I'm, I don't understand that. Sport. I'm fast. It's yeah. that was invented by you know Arctic countries. They got bored. <laughs> they were like, what can we do besides snowshoeing and skiing <laughs> to spice this up? <laughs> Let's mix it up. Can we involve a gun here and a full stop on yes. ski? So you ski, 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 <laughs> and then shoot. Calm down. Get your heart rate down. <laughs> so I I think I could have been a shooter. Uh, Who knows? Yep. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I might have been a good chess player. Mm-hmm. Never really played chess. You know, I played a little bit in eighth grade. Yeah. You know? Didn't get an early introduction to chess.
See, I don't think it's too late for any of us, really. You know, I think We're it not is. Washed up. I don't know if I'd, I'd be interested in skiing. I'm not really a fan of the snow. <laughs> so can I just do the shooting part? Is that okay? Yes. Substitute but, shooter. Yeah. You do the skiing. I'll do the shooting. I'll be over here eating potato chips. Call me in when you need me to shoot. All right. Uh, coming up, uh, we will kick around the college football playoff national championship game. Plus, I had at the beginning of the season, before any of the Pac-12 games were played, I came up with a question for every Pac-12 team. I looked at it today, and I find it very interesting. Did they answer their questions? I'll give you the question and the possible answer for every Pac-12 football team that I had before the season. I think it's an interesting study to see where they ended up. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Georgia will play TCU for the national championship uh, tonight. We'll talk a little bit about that game coming up. Uh, also, I'll give my 12 questions and whether or not the uh, Pac-12 teams answered the questions. Uh, Lions beat the Packers on Sunday night football. I started today's show, Anna, by talking about how the NFL makes everything compelling. Like, you know, I was interested in the 49er game. I was interested in the Seahawks game. I was interested to see the Packers, and everything's compelling. Um, also, though, after the game, Jamal Williams running back uh, for the Lions was very emotional after the game. And there's a lot to unpack in this clip that I'm going to play. I played it earlier in the show. I want to play it again because I think it's fascinating. Uh, listen to this. He's being interviewed on the field. He broke the single-season record for touchdowns scored in a season. The Lions record for touchdowns scored in a season was held by Barry Sanders. Um, he... Uh, he uh, scored 17 touchdowns. Sanders had 16. Here's Jamal Williams. You set the franchise record. You broke Barry Sanders' record. What does that mean to you? Uh, my great-grandfather died on me. I'll just dedicate this to him. I'll just proud. I'm just grateful to do this for him. My grandfather, he was 92, but... I'm just grateful for him to be in my life, and I'm grateful to be able to play football and do this for him. So, there's a lot of memories, a lot of emotion happening right now, but I'm just grateful. I'm grateful to be able to play this game for my great-grandfather, and I'm glad that he's looking down on me, and I know I'm making him proud. You said this ball's for him? Yeah, this is for him. Another thing, stop playing us, man. We made, we the Detroit Lions. We the Detroit Lions. Stop playing with us. I don't even watch TV, but I heard everybody already picked their, picked the Packers over us. Stop playing with us. That's all I got to say, man. Don't let these tears fool you. It's all dog around this mug. I'm good. <laughs> so he pivoted from being very emotional to being very angry or whatever you want to call it at the end there. A lot to unpack. First, let's talk about the emotion. He, you know, ends up with 17 rushing touchdowns. Um, you know, he tied Barry Sanders early in the game. He beat Barry Sanders late in the game. Um, guys, does it matter that he needed one more game than Barry Sanders to do it? Yes, I think that. I think so, definitely. I, th I think that now that the NFL plays these 18-game uh, schedules, a lot of these records have a little asterisk next to it. Because uh, I mean, you're playing one more extra game. That's you know, as Judah would say, it's four quarters more. So, yeah, I think there's definitely uh, asterisks next to it. Anna, 
the emotion of that in his grandpa. Mm-hmm. Hard to miss it. BYU running back, really good player at BYU, having a nice NFL career. I I just love. It's actually to me um, all just passion. It wasn't much of a swing. It was just him, you know, wearing his heart on his sleeve in multiple ways within a three-minute interview. I love the grandpa part, but I laughed hysterically because it almost to me sounded like a different person popped in. (laughs) Like, you know, you often see an interview with a player and then a teammate will walk up and interrupt the interview. Right. It almost sounded to me like his teammate interrupted the interview, but it was him just kind of going, hey, and by the way... (laughs) Uh, <laughs> now that you bring it up, <laughs> you know, you, don't count us down. <laughs> but he also makes this comment that I find amusing, and I have had numerous coaches and players tell me the same thing. He says he doesn't he doesn't watch TV, mm-hmm. but he heard what people were saying about the Packers, how they were counting them out, yeah. or the Lions, they were counting them out. Yeah. Um, I think these players all read, all watch. They're high, they're highly tuned into what is being said. And what is being written? Mm-hmm. Why ignore it? Why say that? Yeah. Why does he have to include? I'm not watching TV, but because uh, he wants to sound like he's above it, you know, like he's not studying everything that's being said, but it gets to him, you know, the word gets to him. I want to play. I don't it. blame him. For Here's that. the end of that. You said this ball's for him. Yeah, this is for him. Another thing, stop playing us, man. We made, we the Detroit Lions. We the Detroit Lions. Stop playing with us. I don't even watch TV, but I heard everybody already picked their, picked the Packers over us. Stop playing with us. That's all I gotta say, man. Don't let these tears fool you. It's all dog around this mug. I'm good. <laughs> what, what does that even mean? Don't let these tears fool you. It's all dog. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 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 tough. Oh, They're I dogs. Love it. I love it. They've got some good players. You, uh-huh. you look on the defensive side of the ball, it was clear last night that they've got some good young defensive players. they got a defensive tackle who's a lights-out player from Michigan. they got Panay Sewell on the offensive line who may end up as a Hall of Famer by the time he's done. He's such a good athlete. Mm-hmm. I, I still find myself watching Panay Sewell kind of away from the ball sometimes because it's amazing to see him run with some of the skill position players in the league when as he gets downfield. Like, mm-hmm. he's just such a good athlete. But uh, and they got a coach in Dan Campbell who I think, you know, deserves some votes for Coach of the Year. They've done a nice job. Some questions for the Pac-12. Uh, I had 12 for 12 teams. I'll give you those in the five o'clock hour. We got the five at five coming up. You got the BFT statewide on the Baldface Truth Radio Network. Leave it locked in right here. Back to the Baldface Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up, uh, we will have our five at five, five biggest, baddest stories in the land going on. Uh, our uh, eight-year-old, I mentioned this earlier, came home from school today. She, she had bad headache. She's complaining. Uh, I gave her some water. Uh, you know, Anna says, uh, let me see your lunch bag. Is this how it goes down? Like, Or do you just go peek into her lunch bag to see if she's been eating anything? <laughs> uh, no, it's not quite like an interrogation like that because I don't want her to be all weird about food. But I do look, and the only thing that was consumed all day by her was a granola bar. So I'm like, it ain't rocket science. You barely drank any water. You ate one granola bar all day. And by 3 o'clock, you have a terrible headache and you're asleep. I, I'll do that myself. I'll often kind of look around and go, um, you know, why don't I, uh, why do I, why am I cramping up? And I'll be like, <laughs> when's the last time I had water? 
It's like two days ago. Last time I ingested fluids. I'm like, oh, yeah, I might be dehydrated. Yeah. So uh, what did you say to her? Did you say to her, uh, what, what, what's going on at lunch hour over there, by the way? Because I went around the room. Steve and Peter have all encountered some form or fashion of this same thing. Yeah. It's just a lot of talking. Not a lot of eating. There's a lot of socializing, and I've been there. I've been there for lunch hour, and I'm like, what? what is happening here? There's very little sustenance being consumed in the course of this lunch period. So I don't know how to solve that. I don't think I was a big lunch eater back in elementary school myself because, uh, as others have pointed out, sometimes, you know, it's about the recess right? that's happening. But the school puts the recess first. So they go to recess. Yes. Then they come in. They, they're strategic about it because they, they know uh, if they put recess after lunch, then really no one's going to eat. Because what I used to do, my mom would make me take the time in the morning to make a sandwich. I hope she's not listening. And put an apple in there. Yeah. And uh, she might put a granola bar in there. Yeah. There might be uh, some some kind of liquid in, <laughs> in included in this brown bag. A, sun, a sunny delight. Here's what I would do. I would open it up. Yeah. I would eat the granola bar. I would take a bite or two of the sandwich, and I would throw the rest away, <sighs> and I would hustle out to the field because we had a game to play. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We had a game to play, Anna. Right. Or I might put it back in my backpack. There was a, there was a ball game to play, <sighs> and I wasn't alone. Yeah. You know? You don't see, like, the Detroit Lions before the kickoff eating the brown bag lunch from mom. <laughs> They're getting ready for the game. Okay. Right. So we were in the playground. We were picking up teams and doing whatever while people were back there finishing their lunch. You know, all those people probably invented Google and went on <laughs> Facebook and went on to big things. But we got our game in. And by 3 o'clock, you were? I was famished. <laughs> Passing out. Yeah. yeah. I was angry. <laughs> Get in the car. What do you mean 3 o'clock? I, it was. It'd be like three, three thirty when, when by the time I got in my parents' car. Right. We didn't like these kids today. These kids, these kids today. today. No. Oh no. All right. No. On another subject, <laughs> I find it interesting. I I talked to a friend who lives in California on the phone last night. Uh huh. And I told him, he was telling me a story about pickleball. Yes. You know, everybody knows the game of pickleball, mm -hmm. right? Everybody understands pickleball. By now, they know. By yeah. now. It's a it's a noisy little game though. It's a noisy little hobby. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. You know, you 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 can hear this game. The ball's Dis loud. Displeasing only to the people not yeah. playing it. Yeah. We've talked about this. Judah Newby <laughs> lives by a pickleball court. Uh huh. And you know, he's like, hey, can there be a certain hours that you can play? Yeah. Cause this can't go on all day long. Well, uh, apparently, and my friend uh, lives near a tennis club. Yeah. Okay. There's a tennis club in his community. Okay. They've taken the tennis courts and turned them into pickleball courts recently. And he says, the neighbors are up in arms because of the noise. Yeah. And I said, oh, my gosh. There's actually a town hall meeting in our little suburban town here in Oregon coming up, like, in a week or two. It was called to my attention by somebody who said, you should go testify. Oh my and I'm gosh. like, why? Why should I be testifying? I neither play pickleball. Nor do I live within earshot of the court. Like, I shouldn't, I have no business. I have no qualm here, as they say on Game of Thrones. There's no quarrel. I have no quarrel with either side. So why would I pick a side? Okay, John so, Snow. So uh, apparently all these communities are having the same issue. Yeah. That people who live near used to be peaceful, abandoned tennis courts that only wiffle ball games would occasionally break out on. Mm -hmm. Or maybe mm -hmm. the occasional... 
rollerblader would be hitting the hockey puck around on their tennis court. Right. Uh, nobody's ever playing tennis. <laughs> and now these courts have been transformed into pickleball courts. People are having real problems with it. Yeah. The neighbors don't like it. They don't like the crowds. They yeah. don't like the attitude from the pickleball players. And they certainly don't like the sound. Yeah, this is the most, like, first world suburban America problem ever. Let's just point that out. I mean, I think it's great. It's a great sport. It has a lot of people out and playing and, you know, moving and getting healthy. But, uh, yeah, this is the reality. There's always going to be some opposition. Right? What, who do you side with if you have to side with one of these sides? Do you side with <sighs> pickleball players? Hey, it's a public park. It's, a, it's supposed to be utilized. You moved in next to a public park. Quit your complaining. Yeah. You, are you with that side? Or are you with the side of the neighbors who, hey, hey, this was not the intention for these courts. Yeah. There needs to be some rules because I can't sleep in the morning <laughs> with the sound of this noise. <laughs> who are you siding with? Um, I, I normally side with like my, my argument to the people who live around it, like you chose to live there. You chose to live near a park. Granted, you didn't anticipate the pickleball would become the sensation that it has become, but don't, it's like people who complain about too many cars being around when they live a block from the school. You know, it's kind of like that a little bit. Aren't you kind of getting what you paid for a little bit? I don't. I know. don't know, Peter and don't, Stephen. Don't at me. Who are you with here? You have to pick a. You have to pick a side. Uh, if I have to pick a side, I'm blaming the people that are complaining about it. Um, I mean, I feel like when you live in a house or wherever you live, like you kind of have the choice of where you're living, so you know that stuff could happen, and you could look around and you could see if there's a park. Like, yeah, there may be a disturbance or two. Uh, you know, I live in Milwaukee. Sometimes there's a disturbance or two that I don't want to hear, but I hear it. So uh, I'm, 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 I think the people are to blame. Yeah, Peter, I don't know, man. Testify, give your testimony now. Yeah, the I think the people cause them the disturbance. I mean, just just because you know you're going to hear it, it doesn't mean you should have to. Uh, I live in a fairly hopping part of Southeast Portland, so I hear it on a uh, not quite hourly basis, but definitely a daily basis. And you know what? I should expect it. I still don't like it. Here's what I would say if I had to do testimony. Okay, mm-hmm. I would say, hey, uh, I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't want to quarrel with anybody, but. This is a fad, people. It it came out of nowhere. It will return to nowhere. Pickleball was invented by somebody in Washington years and years and years ago. It will eventually run its course. People will be playing some other annoyance on those courts in short order. And if you're having that big a problem with it, I'd nudge the uh, neighbors. Yeah. I'd say, just go take the nets down. Mm, what are they going to do? Sabotage. What are they going to do? Yeah. You take mm-hmm. the nets down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? I, yeah. You know, I, I don't, don't know. know if it's going away. LeBron and all those guys are investing in these pickleball leagues. Like, you know, they obviously think there's a future. I kind of feel like it should be an indoor sport in Oregon, though. Yeah. Just because of the weather. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, it's, it should be in some warehouse somewhere yeah. that everybody's playing. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't bother anybody. You should be serving alcohol. You'd be serving nachos. I'd, I'd go over and watch the pickleball You'd players. go into Maybe. a, I don't know, warehouse and just start watching pickleball? <laughs> That's not weird at all. No, but like, <laughs> how is that different from like these trampoline places that are yeah. inside? Or how is it different than, you know, like ping pong? Ping pong. There's ping pong. Yeah. How is it well. different from roller skating? Well, there are rinks. indoor, but I mean, you know? people like to be outdoor. Maybe they just need to construct 
giant sound walls, like the kind that they yeah. have at the airport when they're repairing the uh, commercial jetliners that are supposed to keep all the sound contained. Can somebody invent a ball that doesn't make noise? I think that's part of why pickleballers like to play. Like, they like that noise. They like that little... Yeah, yeah, that noise. Back and forth. All right, the 5 at 5 is coming up. If you're a pickleballer who loves your game, don't at me. And if you're one of those neighbors annoyed by it, I don't want to quarrel with you either. Okay? I'm a new, I'm Switzerland on this one. I don't have a dog in the fight. I may one day, but not today. Uh, the 5 at 5 is coming up. Uh, I will give you 12 questions for 12 Pac-12 schools in the 5 o'clock hour, plus a whole bunch more. The happy hour is next. You're listening to the Bald Face Truth. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, we start the happy hour every day. The 5 at 5 is how we kick it off feel like, uh, you know, if you are uh, listening to this show, I hope you hydrated. I hope you had something good for lunch. You know, I don't I don't really have a lunch hour myself as an adult, like a grown-up. We're, uh, we may be nitpicking the 8-year-old for not eating her meal. I want to talk to her further about this. <laughs> I want to know why she, maybe there's a good reason. Maybe there's some heavy topic of conversation on the playground or something. Yeah. You know, maybe there's a big brouhaha that happened. Maybe. And that's why. Maybe that explains uh, why she didn't uh, eat her anything more than a granola bar. Maybe that's all she had time for. Let me know how that goes. Maybe somebody's sweating her. I've said okay. that piece. You have? Yeah. I wouldn't want to uh, I wouldn't want to cross you if I were her. I'm just going to say that. Uh, we do the 5 at 5 coming up later this hour. I had, at the beginning of the Pac-12 football season, a question for every Pac-12 team. Did they answer the question? We'll have that coming up uh, at 5.30 once you hear for that. Uh, let's do it. The 5 at 5. It's the five biggest stories in sports. The 5 at 5. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. Well, the College Football Hall of Fame announced 18 individuals who will be included in the next class. Among those, Reggie Bush, whose Heisman Trophy in 2005 was vacated because of NCAA violations. Reggie Bush is going in to the Hall of Fame. So is Tim Tebow, the Florida quarterback who won the Heisman in 2007. LaMichael James, Oregon Duck, he's getting in. Michael Bishop, Kansas State, Dwight Freeney of Syracuse, 18 players in total. The Bush uh, admission is an interesting one. He played on two national championship teams I think attitudes towards name image likeness and potential NCAA violations that wouldn't be a violation if it happened today have softened attitudes. And Reggie Bush, I wouldn't be surprised if his Heisman Trophy someday is reinstated. It was vacated in 2005. The NCAA investigated USC and Bush. They determined that he and his family had received impermissible benefits from a marketing agent. The NCAA hit USC with severe sanctions in 2010, and the Heisman Trust vacated Bush's Heisman victory and asked him to return his trophy. I don't think he did return the trophy, though. 
But LaMichael James is getting in. Reggie Bush is getting in. Team Tebow's getting in. College Football Hall of Fame adds 18 to the current class. Anna, number two, go. Cleveland Browns announced over the weekend, after their loss to the Steelers, that they had fired their radio voice and former quarterback Bernie Kosar for violating the NFL's gambling policy. They said they were required to remove him from their pregame radio coverage for the season finale after he violated the policy by placing a bet on an NFL game. He had said publicly, it wasn't like he did this secretly, he said he was planning on donating the winnings from his $19,000 bet on Cleveland beating Pittsburgh. He was going to donate it to charity. So he announced before the game he'd been fired, didn't give the reason, said he was shocked and disappointed. Well, I don't, you can't, as an employee of a team, have a connection, a direct connection with gambling. You can have an endorsement for DraftKings or whatever. Some players have endorsements. But I don't think as an employee of a team, you should be wagering on NFL games. I mean, for re- for reference, when I worked for the Blazers, it was specifically said you cannot bet on the NBA. There you go. Steven would have got a ban, too. I don't really get it because it's not like you're going to affect the outcome of the game, right? You, uh, you're, you, you know information, though. You're in a bad position. I you're see. in a potential position where, let's say you are wagering on games. Okay. You get upside down. Let's say you owe uh, you owe uh, fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. You're, you're underwater. You're okay. drowning. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, somebody come to you and say, "Hey, uh, I want inside information on the Browns. I'll help you erase oh. that that gambling debt." Gotcha. That's why Pete Rose betting on baseball. Him saying, "I never bet on my own team or never bet against my own team," doesn't hold a lot of water <laughs> because see. he could have been doing things in the course of a game to help alleviate some of his gambling debt. I see. You know, he could have affected his own game just to, uh, or given away inside information. It's just forbidden. Yeah. It's a no-no. It's a no-no. It's a faux pas. It's a faux pas. Then why did he do it? That seems so And then he announces it as part of the broadcast. He said it on air. Yeah. He said, hey, I just placed, you know, $18,000 wager or whatever. (laughs) And they said, they said, "Your, your services will no longer be needed. Oh, goodness. Bernie Kosar, fumbling inside the five. (sighs) Number three in our five at five, uh, Paul Riley, former disgraced coach of the Portland Thorns, is among four former NWSL coaches who have received a lifetime ban. That's right. The NWSL handed down lifetime bans for four former coaches. Paul Riley, Christy Hawley, Rory Dames, Richie Burke, all permanently banned from participation in the league. The commissioner of the NWSL, Jessica Berman, handed down the discipline after last month's joint investigative report between the league and the players' union determined that there were unforgivable actions by these four. Um, I'm glad the league has taken a stand. Shouldn't have come this far. Um, The league also passing down some two-year employment bans to a former Utah coach and a former Gotham GM, uh, really, uh, really uh, a league that was infected. I think that's the best way to put it. Anna, number four in our five at five. You got it. Go. This is interesting. Uh, five men's basketball players at a Division three school in Chicago suburbs went to the hospital after a hard practice last week, causing the program to postpone at least two of its games. And that prompted Concordia University Chicago to 
temporarily remove their coach after the workout. This happened back on New Year's Eve. Uh, A letter that was released said that the high-intensity collegiate-level circuit training took place after the team played two games during a late trip to California. It was alleged that the intensity and difficulty of that practice was a direct consequence of the players breaking curfew while they were on that trip. That, so this is punishment, discipline. This is old school stuff. Yes. This is what my coaches used to do to me. Exactly. But now the program's saying they have zero tolerance for harassment or retaliatory actions of any kind. There you go. It only works one way. I guess so. There you go. Number five, finally, in our five at five, Colorado Athletic Director Rick George spoke today in an interview uh, in a podcast with myself and John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group. And he was asked about the defection of USC and UCLA and the college football playoff expansion. How different is the calculus now that the playoff will include 12 teams? Here's what Rick George said about being in the Pac-12 versus maybe leaving it. I mean, I don't know why you would want to go and join a conference where there's 16 to 18 when you can be in a conference of 10 to 12. Um, Your opportunity, particularly when the top six rated conferences have automatic bids and the top four get buys, um, why would you leave? Why would you leave? He's talking to USC and UCLA. He's also, I think, talking to members of the Pac-10 or 12, whatever you want to call it currently, who might think about going to another conference. It's interesting. I think the presidents and chancellors who voted to expand the playoff while the athletic directors and conference commissioners were all bickering and arguing had the best interest in the game in mind because they landed in a place that makes it make more sense for you to stay in the Pac-12 or stay in the Big Ten to stay put rather than move and leave. I think the academics in the end may have helped save college football or at least the college football that we all grew up with. That's our five at five, five biggest things going on in sports. Um, really interesting. By the way, on that, on the uh, the story that you had at number four, mm-hmm. I want to know more about that. So like back in the day, when you had a discipline problem, yes, coaches would run you and run you and run you. Yes. And I did it. We all did it. We all did it. Yeah. But coaches are pretty much not allowed to do that anymore. They're cautioned against it for safety reasons. Mm-hmm. Like you've seen some cases where it goes horrifically wrong. Isn't there a happy medium? Like what is the happy medium? And have we taken away, basically, have we taken away the ability for coaches to hold their players accountable? Discipline. Yeah. How do you discipline a player? Mm-hmm. How do you discipline a player if you can't run them? Uh, I mean, yeah, you can cut their pl- playing time. That's pretty much what you're left with, right? Or yelling at them a lot. I don't know. I would love to know. <laughs> I don't I don't even know if coaches now can yell at players. Because I think, we, and I'm talking about college players in general, because of the portal yeah. and because of the ability for players to, you know. In the NBA, it's evident that the players are way more influential, way more powerful, have way more control than the coaches. Mm-hmm. Okay, They have guaranteed long-term contracts. They just, they're in a position of power uh, versus the authority figure uh, you know, or the coach. So in the college game, though, it's, it's always kind of been the coach who holds the keys to the playing time. And, and prior to the transfer portal, 
players were stuck. If they were going to leave, they're going to have to give give up a year of eligibility or sit out a year. Right. Now they don't have to do that. And oh, by the way, some of these players are making as much money as the head coach. Caleb Williams, he's not making Lincoln Riley money, but he's making three million dollars this this year mm-hmm. in NIL money. It's not like you know Bo Nix or Michael Penix Jr. are be- making as much as their coach, but they're making enough where if the coach doesn't play them or the coach gets sideways with the players, I'm going to gather that some of the uh, influence that is garnered with players who who cut these deals with high-level sponsors, that these sponsors are also sponsors of the programs. So uh, I think there's some problems here that are developing with, you know, who's in charge, who's who's disciplining the players. Like, I don't know if you can discipline players because they'll just transfer. Well, it's interesting when you read the language in this particular story about – you know, their policy, which basically, again, the athletic director at that school, this is Concordia University in Chicago, is saying there is a zero tolerance policy for harassment or retaliatory actions against players, presumably. So they're calling it harassment if the coach disciplines the players? Because it was in direct consequence of of the players breaking curfew while they were on the trip to California. So now... So this is like hazing? Yeah. Hey, if the coach, if the coach, if the coach says, "Hey, you broke curfew, I'm gonna run you," you know, to punish you. Yes. They'd be like, "You no, you can't." Right. There's no retaliatory action here. And I get it. They're trying to preserve, you know, student athlete health, and they're they're putting student athlete health at the utmost priority, right? But like, my question is, how far does it go? Like, we've all been subject to a practice where maybe we weren't putting in our best effort, and the coach is like, "Okay, go run some lines." You know, you've you, there's a consequence for that. I, you I can't do it anymore. I don't know Peter, how Peter and do Stephen, it. have you? How do you? How do you do it if you're a coach now? Ah, that's a tough one. Um, I think it's because um, you're right. You cannot yell and get mad at players especially in the college game because of the portal even the high school level like the players still have a lot of power i i really don't know that's why i'm not a coach john like i I, I need to ask my wife what she does because she obviously does a good job but like i have no idea because i I get annoyed with kids all the time and i don't know how to discipline them so yeah i need help but in the nba guys like i think in our lifetime we've watched coaches I don't see coaches yelling at players, barking at players anymore, unless it's like a Hall of Fame-bound coach like Greg Popovich or somebody who's getting in the ear of a player who's a younger player. Like, I just think the players are treated differently now in professional athlete uh, sports, and and now in college sports, we're seeing the same trend. Peter? Yeah, I, I really don't have a great answer. I mean, you're you're right. You do see that on the pro level. I just... I wonder if that sort of, you know, quiet authority being a player's coach, I just don't know that it translates to that low, lower level because, I mean, the big difference is, yeah, there's NIL, but there's not a lot of guys that are making millions. You know, not everyone is a Caleb Williams or whatever. I'm, I don't know what the answer is. It's going to be interesting. Well, we're watching this series right now called Last Chance You, and the way that the coach in that series is talking to the players on his team, I mean, he's telling them to shut up. And cutting them from practice and sending them home. So it's, and that's, you know, indirect consequence for behavior uh, on or off the court. So but I, but I the difference know. with that one is the coach there, we're talking about East Los Angeles College, okay? And the coach has players who have 
been to four-year schools and burned out. Yeah. And in one case, the center went to Washington, went to LSU. Now he's at community college. He has nowhere else to go. These players have nowhere else to go. So he does have leverage on them in that they need him. They, the players need him maybe more than he needs them, or maybe it's it's very level. But in a true Division One program, I think that the coach needs the players now more than the players need the coach. The, the players go, I, I'll, if you, I don't like what you tell me. I'll do what every club kid in America does. I'll go to a different club. Mm-hmm. And But at, at last chance you, it is their last chance. So they're beholden to this coach who's got the keys to their playing time. And if it doesn't work out there, where do you go from last chance you? You go to work. Right. You know, it's over. Yeah. So, by the way, have you guys seen this series? Have you seen season two of Last Chance U basketball? Yeah, I, I love it. I watched it when it was football, but I love the basketball one because as a junior college basketball player myself, I'd love to see those guys and how they react because it is like that. Like, a lot of people that played you know, junior college basketball, it's because either they are bounce backs from bigger schools or they feel like they should be higher and just they were doubted. So a lot of that is very true. And you're right, John, like, this is really their last chance because, you know, the coach can act the way he wants and the players have to listen because they have no other choice. Like, if they if they don't want him at East Los Angeles, like, either you go to a worse school and you're not looked at or you don't play anymore. And I, I and I and what I love about that, this particular season of Last Chance U, is that the coach is such a good and interesting character. And he is... Um, you know, I don't know. We're only like a couple of episodes in, but I was hooked from like right away. Uh, you know, one of our our family friends said, "Hey, you got to check this out." So I I put it on the other night, and Anna, you were like, "Oh, this is well done." Because you because you, you know documentaries. Yeah. What makes it work? Uh, the characters make it work. The access makes it work. The fact that they have mics on during games uh, on the bench, players have mics, coaches have mics, that kind of access, and just the authenticity of um, being there when things go wrong and the camera keeps rolling. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that um, you don't normally get, and it's very revealing and very raw, and uh, it does a phenomenal job of making you care about the people on the team and and the coaches too. We had Jason Brown, uh, the coach who was the original coach on Last Chance U of Football, on the show. He's a controversial, abrasive character. Uh, I would love to get the, you know, the coach or maybe some of the characters from season two of Last Chance You and Basketball on this show. I think it would be a fantastic interview. But, you know, for anybody who, if you love sports, it's sports. But if you love people, it's people. I mean, it's a reality show is what it really is. And it's and it's the, a cast of characters. Like, you've got, you know, players who are extremely talented, who uh, are delusional about where they should be, <laughs> uh, where they fit. Or how dire their situation is. Yeah. That's the thing that gets me is, you know, a couple of the players are just phenomenally talented. Like, yeah. they are. They would be D1 players on high-level programs if they just co- sort of had their head on straight. Right. But they're delusional about where they are. And I think a lot of it is just the culture of youth basketball where super talented players are just told what they want to hear over and over and over again. Well, because they were probably stars in high school. You know, wherever it is they came from, they were at the top of their game. And if they encountered any adversity, they were told, oh, this is a bad coach, it's a bad program, go to a different program. Mm -hmm. And nobody, I I just get the sense that nobody ever really stuck it out. Mm -hmm. And so there's not a lot of resilience there. 
and it makes for some compelling TV. But the problem, the other thing, the issue that I love about it is I just care about the players. Yeah. I want them to make it. Yeah. So much so that I find myself, like, during the show watching it, like, taking a peek on social media to see, like, where are they now? <laughs> I know. I like, did, too. Do, you did? Oh, yeah. Did they make it? For sure. Did I he get like, out? Okay, he's at Cal Poly now. Okay. <laughs> but one of the players showed up, and, you know, I can't remember who it was, but he showed up, and he's a really good player, and he's missing a, a, one of his front teeth. Yeah. Like, and you could tell, like, he doesn't have dental care. Yeah. And you go, okay, like, I want that guy to make it. Right. Like, I, you know, I want I want to hear, we all want a good story, and that's the arc of it, too, is that, you know, the first couple episodes, the things aren't going well. <laughs> so they got to figure out if they're going to get through this. Coming up, uh, 12 burning questions for 12 Pac-12 schools. That's all still ahead. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, we know that the football season is about to be in the books. Last football game of the uh, season will be Georgia and TCU. But the Pac-12 season is in the books, uh, I, and I think by and large it was a better Pac-12 football season than some of the previous years. We had Pac-12 teams that uh, in the non-conference uh, held their own against the other conferences. We had Pac-12 teams in bowl games uh, that by and large uh, held their own for the most part. Uh, USC losing in the Cotton Bowl to Tulane probably didn't help. Uh, Utah losing the Rose Bowl to Penn State didn't help. But Washington, Oregon, Oregon State, all winning their bowl games. Uh, and the Pac-12 had five ranked teams towards the end of the season. So I think, by and large, it was a pretty good season for the Pac-12, even though they didn't get into the playoff. Uh, need to fix that. Would love to see them get a playoff team uh, next season. And certainly when they expand the playoff in 2024, you know, get more than one team in the playoff will become the rally cry. But at the beginning of the Pac-12 season, Way back on August the 8th, I wrote a column at johnconzano.com. If you're reading me there, you're going to remember this, in which I asked one question, the biggest question that I felt every Pac-12 football program needed to answer in the season. I was going back through sort of the archives today, and I stumbled upon it, and I went, oh, this is interesting. You know, did they answer the question? And so I'm going to give you the question, and then we'll talk a little bit, maybe, uh, guys, about the answers here. But let's start with the Oregon Ducks. The question I had on August 8th for the Oregon Ducks was four words long. Can Dan Lanning coach? That's the question. And it's weird because I feel like we ended the year without resolution on that front. I think it's TBD. Can Dan Lanning coach? Guys, what do you think? Yeah, I was going to say yes with the question mark. Like, I think, I still think he can. He can at least recruit. That's what we know. That is part of coaching, I will say. 100%. In college football now, recruiting is a big part of it. Um, so I, I think I think, I think you're right. I think it's TBD. We don't know for sure if he can actually coach, but we do know he has the recruiting down, and that is half the battle. So can Dan Lanning coach was my question for the Oregon Ducks. Let's go to the Beavers. Uh, my second question uh, of my 12, my question for Oregon State was at the quarterback position. I, I wrote, is there another step forward for quarterback Chance Nolan? 
And the answer was no, there was not. But it didn't end up mattering, did it? Oregon State found a way. They ran the ball. They got Ben Goldbrinson in at quarterback. Uh, but Chance Nolan, I think, was a question. It was a question on August 8th. It was a question on August 9th. It was a question a month later. And then, you know, right around the Utah game, we had our answer as it became evident that Oregon State was pretty good at 21 of the 22 positions on the field, and they had a real hole at quarterback. Yeah, no doubt. And it was answered in the fact that they had to go out and they got a, uh, you know, the four-star Aim Childs. They got him in, and then they go out and they get DJ. Uh, that's how it was answered. Chance Nolan just did not have that extra step, and now he's out of the program. But I think, uh, you know, just going into it, we didn't think the defense was going to be as good as it was, and it was great. So, you know, I think it was good overall for the Beavs. But, yeah, I think going into next season, if they want to take another step, it's got to be that quarterback again. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, that was absolutely the right question to ask ahead of the season. And I don't think any of us would have predicted that had he failed to do it, the Beavers would have had the year he did. So, I mean, credit to Jonathan Smith, credit to all the positional groups. That that one was, I'm still shocked by that season. What a great year they had. Yeah, if you had told me they were going to win 10 games, I would have said, oh, Chance Nolan was really good. Right. And instead he was not. He was He was not good. He threw four picks in the USC game. He was ineffective, lost his confidence by the time they played Utah, and, and then he was gone and disappeared. Uh, my question for USC on August 8th, uh, the Trojans are dangerous at the skill positions, but will they be able to win in the trenches? That was the question. I think the answer was they won enough in the trenches to, to, to make those wins uh, possible. I think Caleb Williams was fantastic on the field. I think he covered up a lot of flaws. We saw it in the title game. Once he left the game or once he got injured, it, it you know they were just a very ordinary team. They they were not very physical. I think it's a real. I think USC has a real question in front of them for next season about you know continuity and you know will they be exposed because I think around them with Michael Penix Jr. returning and Bo Nix returning and Cam Rising returning and Oregon State getting uh, DJ Uyunglele uh, at quarterback I think you have a whole bunch of teams that have all got better Colorado's better I think Arizona will be better I think Washington State might be better I think USC's got you know USC needs to you know continue to take steps forward or I think some of these teams will figure out how to defend Caleb Williams and how to defend that pass attack. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was enough, but at the same time, in the biggest games of the season, the Pac-12 championship game, Caleb Williams did get hurt, but they gave up a lot in the trenches, and then the game against Tulane, Tulane ran all over them as well. So I think it was a, I think it was a no. Like I don't think they were tough enough within the trenches, and they still need to address that going into the next season because that is obviously the biggest weakness. Caleb Williams is really good. The outside receivers are really good. The running backs are really good. But if you can't be physical enough, you're not going to make it, even through the Pac-12. You're not going to go undefeated in in this conference, and then you're not going to make it to the college football playoff. My question for Colorado on August the 8th was, how patient will the university be with Carl Durrell? Turns out, not that patient. They fired him midseason. They pivoted now to Deion Sanders. I think it's a good move for Colorado. Great move. Yeah, I think it was uh, it was the right question, and I think they answered it correctly by getting rid of him soon and getting in uh, Dion, who it, people are still talking about. He was on the national uh, championship coverage tonight. Him and Nick Saban were on the coverage, so uh, you know they're talking about Colorado right now. The question for Arizona on August the 8th, is Jaden Delora good enough to keep games close? And I'm going to say no. It ended up being a no on that because he was good enough to make them better, but I don't think it was him. I think it was 
you know, the, the talent around him got better. They had 21 transfers that came into the program. He was one of them. Um, I think Arizona is going to be even better next season. But I don't think Jaden Delora really put them over the top the way Bo Nix put Oregon over the top or Michael Penix Jr. did at Washington. I actually disagree with you. I think Jaden Delora did a really good job at Arizona. And, yes, there was a couple games, the Washington State game in particular, where he turned it over a lot, and that was a big reason why they lost the game. But I do think that there were some issues at the offensive line where he was so dynamic in the backfield, avoiding sacks and having to make big plays, that he did it enough where you know it got Arizona to 5-7, and seven, and there's a lot of momentum going forward. So I disagree. I think Jaden Delora uh, was a huge reason why they were in a lot of games this year. I asked if Chip Kelly for UCLA, this was their question on August 8th, is Chip Kelly about to break through? And it was interesting because they played a really soft non-conference schedule, so I, I didn't know what to make of them after three weeks. But UCLA broke through in my mind. I think I think they were better with Dorian Thompson-Robinson at quarterback. They, they played well. Uh, I think they were a good team for most of the stretch of the season. I, I don't think they ever rose to being great. But I think it was a breakthrough for Chip Kelly that he had a team that was ranked, that was sniffing around the top 15 at one point of the season. Uh, but I kind of wonder what happens to UCLA. You know, you know. frankly, I think Dante Moore coming into the program is super encouraging. So I guess you could view that as a breakthrough as well for Chip Kelly. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The Dante Moore thing was the breakthrough for Chip Kelly because now they got that guy at quarterback who, you know, and we saw when Chip Kelly and Marcus Mariota, how good they were. Not saying that Dante Moore is going to be that, but they, you know, he's got the talent to be that good. You want to see what he can do now that they have broken through, gotten to the top 25, were a legitimate top 20 team all season long. I think it was a great year for Chip Kelly. Finally, uh, well, by the way, I've gone six. Let's do the next six in the next segment. I want my questions for Washington, Washington State, Cal, Stanford, Arizona State, all still in front of us. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. All right, let's talk about the questions that uh, were burning questions in August for the Pac-12 Conference football programs. Uh, we've gone through Oregon and Oregon State. Uh, Oregon can Dan Lanning coach. I think he can. I, I think he's done a hell of a job recruiting. I think the UCLA game was evidence that he can put together a game plan and he can out-chip Chip Kelly. I think uh, I thought his high points were UCLA. I thought BYU was a good game that he coached. I think the Utah game given Bo Nix's limited uh, mobility, showed a lot of uh, grit and resilience. I think the Washington and Oregon State games to finish the year, I think he'd probably like to have those two games back if he if he's being real. Um, Oregon State, is there another step forward for Chance Nolan, was the question that, uh, uh, that I posed on August 8th, and it turns out the answer is no. There was not a step forward. In fact, he regressed, did not look as good. Um, I now want to talk about Washington, Washington State, Cal, Stanford, and Arizona State. Those are the final six that we haven't talked about to this point. Um, let's talk about Washington. My question on August 8th, will quarterback Michael Penix Jr. stay healthy? He did stay healthy, and that was huge for Kalen DeBoer in Washington. Yeah, I mean, he was awesome this season, and now looking forward to next season, you know, 
I saw John Wilner put out he thinks they're a top five team, Washington. Michael Penix Jr. odds in Caesar Sports. He's fourth right now in the Heisman, which is probably about right where he should be. I mean, he had a great season a season ago, and I think that's going to be the question next season as well. Like, can't if he stays healthy, this Washington team has a chance to go 10 and 2, 11 and 1. If he's hurt, that's when they're going to be in trouble. Let's move to the next question for Washington State. By the way, they have to keep him healthy again next season. But I also think they need to find a defense and a run game in Seattle. If they can do that, I think Washington goes from, hey, this is a team that can compete for, you know, 9, 10, 11 wins to, hey, could this team make the playoff? Like if they were better running the football and a little better on defense, I I think Washington is right there. Uh, I also went back and I looked at the Oregon State game that Washington played against Oregon State. That was 24-21, and it was a miserable day at Husky Stadium. I was there. The wind was blowing sideways. In the pregame, the Oregon State punter punted the ball, and he was standing in, in, in the middle of the field. He punted the ball. It blew so far out of bounds that it blew into the stands. I've never seen a ball go 60 yards in the air to the side. Uh, and it wasn't shanked off his foot. He just kicked it high, and the wind took it. So I think that was interesting. Uh, Washington State. The question I had for Washington State is, what is the ceiling for quarterback Cameron Ward and offensive coordinator Eric Morris on the offensive side? And I think I nailed that one because that became the limitation for Washington State all year. Defensively, they were okay. Offensively, they were a little bit of a mess for a stretch during the regular season. They didn't really figure it out until, I think, about week eight. And all of a sudden they started running, um, you know, Nakia Harris more. And as they did that, they found their offense. It wasn't the co-grade. It was the run game that saved Washington State kind of in the meat of their season. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, I don't want to say Cam, Cam Ward was a little disappointing, but uh, it was a little disappointing to me. I was expecting a little more out of him, but – you know, you talk about Eric Morris, and you know he fulfilled his duties, and now he's he's off onto North Texas to be their head coach. Uh, he's still well thought of, so I think you're right on with that one. And Washington State was exactly kind of who Cameron Ward was, you know, seven and five type of team. That's how he played this year. Nakia Watson, I said Nakia Morris. I meant Nakia Watson, the running back. He was really good down the stretch. I think he saved him a little bit. Uh, Arizona State. My question for Arizona State was simple: Can we trust the Sun Devils on game day? Turns out we can't. You know, they just weren't good. Herm Edwards kind of lost this team. I think you found it in the non-conference schedule when it came out that one of his assistant coaches had leaked the game plan to an opposing head coach. Um, it was just a bad, bad formula. Arizona State was a mess. It had been a mess throughout the pandemic. I like Herm Edwards. I think he's quotable. I think he's interesting. But the, he, he just sort of had lost the handle on the program. Yeah, he did, and they had some of the more bizarre loss, you know, maybe the most bizarre loss to Eastern Michigan early in the year, but then they go and they beat Washington later on in the season. So exactly yeah. what you said, no trust. Uh, the Sun Devils down in Tempe. It'll be interesting to see what Kenny Dillingham can do. He's you know got some momentum in the transfer portal. Can he build a little more trust with them uh, going forward? My question for Stanford is, why is David Shaw smiling like he knows something we don't? Remember at Media Day, he said he was a tiger lying in the weeds. I kind of look back, and I wonder if David Shaw knew all along that this was it. Like, he was just really loose. He brought his son to Media Day. And his son is a uh, recruit, high school recruit. I think he's a three-star receiver. Um, I just wonder if David Shaw kind of had it in the back of his mind all along. Like, hey, this is, I think this is going to be it for me. 
He saw the writing on the wall, the transfer portal. I don't know that this came to him during the season. But he was smiling like he knew something we didn't at the beginning of the season. And I wonder if that thing that he knew was, eh, I, I'm kind of over this. Yeah, I heard that quote that he had, and I took it as, oh, I think Stanford's going to be good this year. And that was the complete wrong answer. I think you're right. Like, he uh, may have known in the back of his head, like, this could not, this may go bad this year. This may be my last year uh, over at Stanford. It was a very bad season uh, for the Cardinals this year. Yeah, he had nothing to lose, really. Uh, Cal, my question for Justin Wilcox and Cal. I said, we know that Justin Wilcox will be great on defense, but will the Bears find consistent offensive juice? That was the question, and it's frankly why I think he had to make a change with his offensive staff. Like, Cal struggled on the offensive side of the ball. They need now, with a new coordinator in place, and some transfers who have now come in at the running back position, they need to be a better offensive team next year. And I think the answer was no, they didn't find offensive juice. They didn't, and now you know they lose Plummer at the quarterback. How are they going to replace him? You're right, they did just get uh, a flip. He flipped from Stanford to Cal at running back. They could be able. They should be able to run the ball a little bit. They did this year as well. But can they get some type of quarterback to really elevate them to maybe be one of those sneaky teams that can uh, upset a team later on in the season? Yeah, and they also grabbed a uh, tight end today out of the portal. So they got another uh, another one, and they got a uh, running back from Tennessee as well. Justin Williams Thomas also joined. But um, really interesting. So Cal is. I think they're trying to put it together. I think they're trying to find out who they are on the offensive side of the ball, but. You know, it'll be interesting to see what are the questions for next season as we uh, look at the Pac-12 conference. I want you to leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson in the Pulse uh, coming up in Portland, top of the hour, just about 10 minutes from now. Peter always does a great show. It's always compelling, interesting. It's funny. Peter, what do you got today? What are you uh, going to start with, at least? Yeah, uh, the Trailblazers seem to be falling apart in front of our eyes. There's a couple of uh, reasons for that. I want to kick it around. I mean, the bench is terrible. They're the only team with under 1,000 bench points this season. But even more than that, it just looks like the vibes are off just among the team. They don't seem to be playing well together, so I want to do a little bit of a dive on that. Interesting. Uh, when you have uh, a team that is that deficient on the bench, uh, you know, is this a case of they just the bench players aren't producing, or are they not getting any? Are they not getting any minutes, or are they not getting any? Are they trusted? What is going on there? I think that it all kind of feeds each other, right? You get some poor performances, and maybe a key guy or two is out off that reserve unit, and then you got to stick to the starters. More the the reserves get thrown off. They go in. They don't perform. At a certain point, Chauncey Billups, he was even quoted after uh, yesterday afternoon's game saying, I had to go back to my starters. That's the only way we could make a run. So I, I think not only are they just not playing that well, but they're all out of sorts. They're, it's It's not a good situation. Is the GP2 thing going to linger? Like I, I have seen it suggested by some that the Blazers should trade him. I don't know what kind of value he has. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the real question. My conspiracy theory uh, has been that he was acquired almost strictly as an asset, but at a certain point, he needs to show that he can play. And again, he'll help the team. He's athletic. He's a really, really good defender, but he's not the savior. Like, he's not going to come in, and Justice Winslow and Nasir Little aren't going to come back around the same time, say, you know, in a week or two, and all of a sudden, this is a top two three seed in the Western Conference. They're just, they have talent. This is a talented team. It's not a legit contender. We know that. But this is a better team than what they've shown over the last month. I mean, really unforced errors. Just, it's it's not pretty. I, I just, I, I didn't feel from the beginning, and, and I don't think you did either, Stephen, that this season was going to be like this magical breakthrough season. I, I kind of felt from the beginning of the year that we were all being sold like we typically get sold, and then they got off to a hot start, you know. But is it possible that that hot start was just, hey, this is a team that tends to put the pedal to the metal out of the gates while the rest of the league is kind of, you know, sluggishly waking up? And like I, I just feel like over the years, they, I, I wonder what their win percentage is kind of in the first month of the season in the last decade. I kind of feel like if – if we looked that up, we would find that this is a team that tends to make hay in the early part of the season. Yeah, I thought I thought the first you know ten games, fifteen games that they had where they came out so hot. I think a lot of it had to do with there was a lot of doubters, you know, like me included, and they were coming off the tank season and they wanted to come out and prove, hey, you know, we're we're not tanking this year. We're a good team again, and they really played that way. And now that's kind of died off all that momentum, and they really gotta you know have a little gut check here. I disagree with Pete a little bit. I don't think that this team is as talented as Peter's making it out to be. I think there's a lot of lot more improvements that they can make, and I think Joe Cronin has a really important uh, trade deadline coming up to figure out what exact direction they're going to go because I think this bench is really terrible, and I don't think there's much talent at all on the bench. And so like, I want to blame the bench, but at the same time, and I want to blame Chauncey, he has no choice, like Peter said, but to put the starters back out there. So I think it's a real problem. I think it is more of a talent issue for the Trailblazers right now and why they're not necessarily competing with the top teams. But isn't the part of the problem, maybe you can talk about this or you'll get deeper into this, Peter, during your show. I don't want to, you know, steal the thunder here, but I think we can, there's a segue here. You know, when they made the deals at the February deadline last year, um, I don't think they made very good deals. They didn't get a lot of value. They didn't get a lot of depth in return. It felt like they were, it was, it wasn't exactly a fire sale, but they weren't getting, you know, uh, they weren't getting a one for one, value when they gave up some of those players is that manifesting itself now with a bench that has no depth and no talent maybe a little bit i mean i think a lot of it was getting off of the contract right you had to get off of cj mccollum's contract josh hart uh certainly doesn't score like cj mccollum but I, i would call that a positive acquisition uh but I still even contend, look, you had to get rid of Robert Cummington and Norman Powell. You know, there wasn't a lot of effort there. They're fine players, but you still didn't get a lot. You know, you get Keon Johnson and you go, really? Okay, like that's supposedly the pick. That's that's not a lot of value to me. And, you know, I'm sure they could have maybe gotten one more bench piece out of that because they are lacking guys. I mean, look, it's a team that you got three players that are averaging 20 points a game, but you need to have pieces around him. You got to have actual guys that can go out and get stops. You know your backcourt's not going to do it and they're they're really floundering. I mean it's completely different. The first, you know, 6th of the season, they were playing so well together, really good defense, really interconnected and now it's like they've never played basketball together. 
Yeah, I think the problem with the CJ trade is, and I liked it. I, I agree with Peter. They had to make these deals, but they're really banking on the Pelicans not making the playoffs last yeah. season and getting a second lottery pick. Mm-hmm. Didn't work out, and so they only had the one lottery pick. And I think if they would have had you know that 14th overall draft pick, not saying he'd be you know a guy that you can necessarily rely on all the time, but at least you'd have another younger player that you hopefully uh, could put out there a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, look for Blazer fans. I at the beginning of the year I said I want this team to be compelling. I want it to be fun. I want it to be interesting. I still think that's out there, you know. It and I still think it's Joe Cronin's job to get this done. So you know, pressure on Joe Cronin, pressure on the Blazers. Don't lower the standard. Don't lower the bar if you're a Blazer fan because um, I I think you know you your your expectations will hold them accountable and I think that's important. I think I think that's true across all sports. Like Beaver fans. I felt like the big mistake that Beaver fans made, Oregon State fans made over the years, and I've, I've been here, what, 20, 20 years? Yeah, 20 years, plus years. Uh, I've been here a couple of decades. I It always surprised me that Beaver fans started the season with the bar so low. And the little engine that could mentality that the athletic department was perpetually, you know, chronically throwing forth. It's charming to a certain extent, and then it becomes an inhibiting factor when you're trying to take big steps. I think the mentality has got to be big. That best little college town billboard, it's cool, it's cute, it might even be true. It might even be that they're the best college town in, uh, you know, in, the, uh, in the conference. But it also, I think, holds you back a little bit if you are um, – you know, it, you know, not acknowledging that ex- fan expectations. Hey, we're not going to buy season tickets if the product's not good. Hey, we're not going to buy season tickets if we're sitting on a bench on the west side of Research Stadium when other stadiums are nicer than our stadium. And I think in the last couple of years what you've seen with Jonathan Smith is he's come in, he's not accepted excuses, he's not lowering the bar, he's saying, I know what it takes to win here, I know what it takes to get to Fiesta Bowl, uh, let's go for it. Um, I think the expectations at Oregon now, uh, let's talk about it. You know, I think the fans at Oregon probably entered this season thinking, let's get to the playoff. Now, it's kind of nutty to say in Dan Lanning's first season, he's going to take Oregon to the college football playoff. And there were people who were even straight-faced saying Oregon could play Georgia close in the season opener. Uh, we very quickly found out that those expectations could be your enemy. I don't want Oregon fans to lower their expectations at all. I don't think you should, you know, if you're an Oregon fan, go into a season going, hey, it's okay to win nine games this year. No, it's not okay with the resources that they have. You should expect a lot from Dan Lanning in Oregon. But just be mindful over the course of the season, when you arrive at the end and, you know, they win ten games ultimately, that it's not a disaster. It's just that your expectations are such at Oregon that Oregon State can win nine, and you can win nine, and they can be ready for a parade, and you can be, you know, pulling your hair out. Leave it here. Peter Sampson and the Pulse coming up. You'll have fun with Peter. Leave it here.